Hello. Hello. We're Good evening, live. everyone. Hello. Welcome back to Pencil to Pencil podcast. Uh, thanks for joining us today. I already see there's some eyes on us. Some eyes are in the room. Um, welcome back to our Wednesday edition. Uh, I'm very pleased to have the, the boys are back in town. I'm Jamar Nicholas. This is Mike Manley, and this is Brett Blevins. Hey, say hey, Brett. Hello. <laughs> we got the whole crew in. I'm very uh, excited to see us all in one place. Uh, and um, I'm trying to do some real estate issues over here. There's so much stuff going on. Uh, and as always, Pencil to Pencil is brought to you by Clip Studio Paint. See it up there? Uh, let me get this out of the way. <laughs> you're, you're, you're blocking our sponsor. <laughs> Um, I want to just get to it because um, we had such a great time with uh, Sean Galloway last Saturday, uh, and uh, we had a, we had a lot of really great responses. And uh, Mike, did you have any feedback about that, or anybody reach out to you about the Cheeks episode? Uh, yeah, we I've, I had a lot on, actually on the uh, Instagram, uh, even more for some reason. I guess that's where a lot of people saw the. Mm -hmm. Uh, the plug, so they were were talking. But yeah, yeah, people really liked seeing uh, uh, Sean, and he's such a nice guy, and 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 so generous with his time, and they really loved seeing him draw. Yeah, well, so that's, that, was, that was great. That's awesome. Um, yeah, and we want to just keep bringing more dope content like this to you. So make sure you subscribe to us. Uh, the video version is here on our Facebook channel and soon to be a YouTube channel. And you can always see the audio on, you can see the audio <laughs> on our pencil to pencil.com website. Also, yeah, you can stare at the audio there. You can just go and look at it. You don't have to look to it. Just look at it. Uh, <laughs> iTunes and Stitcher. Uh, all right. Uh, so we have a very special guest in the green room. Uh, our good friend and yours, William Ray. I'm going to bring him in, so uh, let's see if he's ready for us. Hey, Bill. There he is. Hello. Hey, Mark. hey Mike. <laughs> hey, Brett. Hello. Um, I'm going to need to go to the bathroom. Can I have about 10 minutes? <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, maybe I can hold it. All right. Uh, well, you know, I could always... Uh, I'm dark... at that age. What can I say? You know, it's like... <laughs> you had all this time in the green room, Bill. You just have to go right there. Oh, uh, well... <laughs> Tell that to my urinary tract. <laughs> yeah, if you have to get up, we'll we'll cover for you. Don't worry about it. All right. Your angle. You have a drawing of yourself. You can stick there, right there. <laughs> so, um, uh, let me just give uh, some housekeeping to the to the room, uh, guys. If you're watching us, I don't know that you're here unless you type in the chat that you're here. So, if you have any comments or questions for myself or Bill or Brett or Mike, please um, type them up and I'll do my best to get to them. All right. Okay. All right, Mike, you wanna, you wanna start? What, what, who, where? Uh, <laughs> um, well, I was just trying to remember the first time that we met Bill, which I believe was with Brett at Illustration House back in New York. Um, that sounds that, correct to me. Yeah, that was the first time that we met, and I believe that was the day that Brett and I have driven down from Honesdale when we were sharing Al Williamson's studio, and we hit a dog, 
and yeah. on the way back it was like on the way back it was a storm yeah yeah it was like a really crazy day um but that was a day that i bought um i bought some stuff from uh um from from them roger reed walt reed yeah both of them and it was just such a overwhelming day because i'd never been there before and so for people who don't know about it but i mean this was sort of like the i don't know like the the end of Raiders of the Lost Art, except it was all artwork by all the the most famous illustrators that you could imagine. Mm -hmm. So, like in one drawer, there's uh, Dean Cornwell, and over here there's a Norman Rockwell, and over here there's a Bill Ray. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, there was a Bill Ray, very natty too. Well, he maybe had a... I I guess I was the original, but uh, yeah. Um... You didn't try to swap your portfolio out like in Raiders with like the line deck. Oh, that, you know what? I should have. I should have been thinking about that. <laughs> Did you? Were you? Were you buying something that day, or were you? Do you remember? Um, I may have been. I hope I wasn't too arrogant to you that day. Was I? Was I a dickhead or anything? No, no. You were. Oh, you good. were very beautiful too, Bill. You had a beautiful coat and a hat on. I yeah, I remember you had a hat. Yeah. Oh, that must have been my spirit days when I used to uh, fancy I would do something with Will Eisner for a little while. Yeah, a very nice coat. He led me on to believe that would happen, but that's another one of my many stories of projects that never went anywhere. We all have a million of them. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. So but yeah, uh, New York was great for you know being able to be dressed, you know, put on cool clothes and. You know, and it was the 80s, so it was like dressing up was a thing. Everybody kind of yeah. did, you know. Mm -hmm. um, recently, my, uh, Mike Mignola has been embarrassed about some of the new wave outfits he was wearing back then, you know, mm -hmm. and the mullet and all that stuff. Did you have like short pads and stuff? Mullet, so, you know, uh, I didn't go through that phase. There's no mullet photos I'm ashamed of. <laughs> Did you I remember um, you? My main memory is you showing me your samples of your work. Do you remember that? I might have had them with me because I think we go. We went to Marvel that day, I believe. Yeah. We'd gone and into I, Marvel. I remember me saying something typically, perhaps overly candid. You know, a direct answer that the work felt like you were a strip artist. And it didn't feel enough like Marvel slam bang Kirby in your face to me. You know, it looked it looked a bit like, you know, I can't even remember the example that I picked at the time, but it was definitely felt a little bit old school. And so my, my counsel to you was solid drawing here, but it's a little quiet as compared to the over the top world Marvel was going with and continued to reach for after that. Do you remember that? That I don't, I don't, I, I'm trying to remember what I took oh, good. in. And I didn't insult you or you would. That, that uh, day. No, I, and, and it's funny too, because if you say Kirby, they definitely were not into Kirby at that time. And I remember right. the first time I went to Marvel, I was thinking, oh, Kirby. And they're like, no, John Byrne, not Jack Kirby. Right. Well, I don't remember exactly what I said, but. Um, you I made me cry, Kirby, Bill. I may not, but, but. but your sample wasn't anything like Jack Kirby to, that I'm remembering or John Byrne or anything Marvel. It felt, as I said, it felt like a, a strip. Anyway, this is just so in the abstract. Let's, 
um, yeah, that that gallery was just unbelievable. It was always such a wonderful thing to go visit. And it was just three blocks from my studio. So I was over there all the time. They're like, oh, not Bill Ray again. Here he comes. We're, we're, in fact, we're, I, in fact, the first the first time I wandered over there, um, it was before they had opened, and I heard they were there. So I went over there, and these two guys were getting out of the elevator who looked straight out of central casting from a Martin Scorsese film <laughs> with the smashed faces and the, the thuggery look about them and smell about them. And I walk in, and Roger Reed looks like someone just threatened his life. And I said, oh, I saw your new friends out there. I, I happen to know what goes on in that neighborhood. It's an old mafia neighborhood, uh, for real. And when I was living there, it was it was the real, real deal day in and day out. It was mm -hmm. not some sort of joke that was in the underground. They fucking owned Soho. That's how it was. Mm -hmm. And I said, oh, you found, met the guys who were going to be taking your garbage out. And Roger's kind of like, um, yeah, I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> they made me a proposal, and I said, "Yeah, one well, you couldn't refuse." Right? <laughs> and, I, and I said, he said something along the lines of, "Well, I don't think I will try," you know. But um, so now you were living in New York. Um, you're originally from California, right? Yeah, you were, you were, and but you were also going to the. Uh, was this is after you were going to the Art Student League? No, that was the whole reason I was there, is I wanted to go to school, and I really wanted to go in Southern California to Art Center School, but it was too expensive of a proposition. And there was this artist that I took privately, who um, hopefully his name will pop back into my head. It's slipping out like it always does in these kind of pressure situation shall we say but he taught head drawing and i wanted to take him full time and he said no nah, i just i don't like doing this apparently he was making his living doing porno paperback covers in a kind of a pseudo mcginnis style mm. um, you know my lesbian friend or whatever and, and and it was like he had enough work even though it was sleazy work and small time gigs that he didn't want to teach full time but he said you should go to the art students league and he told me about the budget and he told me about the Riley method, which is a old school version of how to paint that was um, created by a guy named Frank Riley. You guys all know this, who, right. who, um, who kind of cobbled it together from the notes of Dean Cornwell's painting and, and being his assistant. And there was this guy named Jack Ferragasso, who's still at the league teaching it. And he's still alive now, as a matter of fact. And... I decided to take his class and another German guy named Gustav Rayberger and then an anatomy teacher whose name I've forgotten now um, and just forego the idea of getting an MFA, which is always a little bit of a regret, but I have no student debt either. But that's what I was doing. And I did comic books on the side to make money for day-to-day -day living expenses. I take it New York was more affordable then? It was more affordable, not really. It was getting very expensive and it had already been expensive. Um, I got very lucky, uh, extremely lucky that, that I got this wonderful studio space on Soho, right on Prince and West Broadway, second floor. The space itself was valued at 5,000 a month if you would put a little art gallery in there. Mm. And um, and it was only that low because that was the second floor, you know, but, but the guy renting it didn't want foot traffic going through it. Mm -hmm. And he was an artist himself, and he um, 
I was, I won't go tell that whole story, it's too long, but he just sympathized with the young art student and rented me the place for like three and a quarter a month or something. And so I could afford that. And, and uh, I was there for several years and I just loved it. And the, the sad thing is, is that I got into the fine art world much later. We've had these conversations many times, but that being right there positioned me into breaking into the fine art world then and there. Mm. Like it couldn't have been set up for me any better other than having rich parents who are connected to people who buy art, which I didn't have. But, um, you know, the squat was right around the corner and many of those other guys like Shepard Ferry were putting up art all the time, right around, you know, Keith Herring, would see him all the time, chased him down the street once. Um, so, so it was like the ideal place to be, except I wanted to be J.C. Leindecker Jr. Just a colossal mistake for a career in fine art, but not a bad one for learning how to draw and paint at the Art Students League. Okay, somebody else got to talk. <laughs> did you, did you, um, were you coloring then or were you, <clears throat> were you still trying to get into mad? Coloring, Mike? Coloring? coloring? Were you coloring, doing guides for comics and stuff? And, or were you working for, was that cracked or crazy? Um, all those things happened more or less around that time. Um, the order of which I don't exactly remember, but probably the first thing I ever did in comics regularly was work for Greg Feaston as his assistant. Greg Feaston was a kind of low rent, as low rent as they get publisher. And he would, he would collect uh, art, famous artists like Alex Toth who are in the public domain and print, find the originals or copies of the originals if he could, or stats, or good quality, blah, 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 to, to make these books, call them things like Buried Treasure. I did a couple of covers for him and stuff, and he did a thing called the Betty Pages, which was probably his right. biggest success. Right. With that, that icon pinup girl from the 60s and 50s. He was, he was pure imagination, right? Wasn't that he the was name? He was pure imagination, and he had not one drop of imagination. <laughs> that was the, the irony of it all. <laughs> He was super nice to me, so it's really catty of me to say this, but he's dead now, so I can get away with it. But um, he was quite sure that he was incredibly talented, and he really was not that. And he, he managed to ingratiate himself with the Jack Kirby family and kind of get Mike Royer shoved aside, and he became the, the last Kirby inker, so to speak. And he was redrawing Kirby on superpowers, the thing was, is that Kirby kind of needed a little fix, but that fix, you know, because his work was he, he he had this old man thing. I've got it a little bit now too myself. What happens? I'll demonstrate with my hands. See how they're off center. Mm. When you you start to have to always correct it back to here. Uh, there's something in the brain when you're getting older that can do that a little bit, you know, where where it's had this distortion, so everybody looks like however that would affect it. Yeah, And it was subtle still then, but it was there if you really know Kirby. And so uh, Greg fixed that stuff. But really, the person to fix it would have been someone like a, a Frank guy, Giacoya, or, or the guy that Brett, or Brett, or Brett, the guy, the guy that worked with Brett, Al Williamson, somebody who could fix it, except that Al probably wouldn't want to be bothered to fix it, but he could. 
but it, it needed to be somebody. Uh, maybe Al's not the best choice, even though he and Kirby way back in the day. But a friend, you know, as a some solid anchor, Royer may have been able to do it too. He may have been doing it, you know. Um, but but somehow Greg talked himself into being the man, and that benefited me being his his assistant because he was getting graphic novels to paint, including Hunger Dogs, and he gave me half the book to paint the first day I walked in there. Wow! And just here, just take these pages, <laughs> and I, and I'm like aren't you coloring this book? And he's like, no, no. And, and I should say painting, you know, it was that blue line painting, not just uh, picking up numbers on the charts and doing the watercolor fill in. Um, and I just, I said, you don't want to tell me what to do. No, you're a good colorist. Just do it. Mm. And it was like, and he gave me all the action pages. He wanted to do the quiet ones, which I, in that case, I guess, Without sounding too catty, I guess he was playing to his weakness, you know. Well, they were like, easier, maybe. Do you think they were they were easier? Or? I, I don't know, but you know, but I got all the big doubles page spreads of Dark Side walking around and and you know everything exploding and curvy flames everywhere or whatever. And I had a ball working on that thing. And we did another one. We did two of them back to back. We did the Hell on Earth, uh, Keith Geffen's adaptation of, of Robert Block's story. And it'll be the same thing. All the really weird pages he gave to me. Although everything Keith Geffen ever did was weird. But, you know. <laughs> right, right. The, but... the, the crazy action or the hallucinations or anything like that. And he never changed one thing. If there was ever a change at all, it would just be something like, oh, we established this custom color here. And we can't really do a blown out fancy color like you've done. We've got to see the costume or something. But almost never. So he was a pleasure to work for. But it was kind of like weird to work for somebody who you couldn't like their art you know um but you like least, him as a he, didn't, he didn't browbeat me he didn't say draw like me which would have been really torture um he just said do what you do and so and he was very generous in many other ways you know I, i'm making this story too long i guess but um that's what the podcast that is was for. that was the first art job i had and he took me into dc comics and he introduced me around, and I got to know um, uh, Andy Helfer through him. Do you guys remember Andy? Oh, yep, yep. And um, Len Wein. And I broke in like a lot of young artists did, inking uh, Who's Who pages, because there were so many millions of them to do. Oh, right, yeah. And, and the Who's Who thing uh, was great because I got a chance to ink all the famous artists. Not all, but a, a nice little selection of them. Like an, I did an Infantino one, Irv Melvick one. Uh, it seems like a lot of the kind of old school guys who are kind of on their last career legs there. But um, most of them are really still pretty good. And and so, you know, you wouldn't have to lift them up much. And then they actually let me do a few 100% myself. And Andy just put me on inking different books like Justice League and things like that. I turned into a real arrogant prick pretty quickly. Here, here's the, the, the stupidest thing any artist could do for their career. I was standing, I was doing Justice League or another book, something like that. And there was a fill-in issue by this new kid, this new punk kid who I didn't think was any good at all, Joe Quesada. <laughs> I proceeded to say, I'm not going to ink this story. It's terrible art. And I don't even know how you could use this kid. And I looked up and he was standing right there. 
Oh, <laughs> so that I never things never worked out for me at Marvel. Now, when I was over at Marvel, he wasn't had not made the rise to power, mm-hmm. so that really had nothing to do with it. But in the passage of time, you know, you almost think, well, that destroyed me at Marvel. Well, no, it didn't really destroy me at Marvel. They, I just didn't fit in or whatever. But um, yeah, that, that's when I was saying that, like, got to watch that arrogance, you know. And they knew he had to be fixed. So they gave him, I think Kevin Nolan started inking most of his jobs. And so from the get-go, he looked great because he had that Kevin Nolan lift up that, you know, that makeup job that he gave him. And then he did turn into a great artist, you know, so um, not my very favorite Marvel artist ever, but, and his work, he kind of made up for everything by putting the work in. I mean, just beautifully, all this incredible drawing um, in his work. And um, we never had a conversation about it. I'd be curious to know if he even remembered that, you know, because a lot of times you blow these things up in your mind, you know, like this was this big killer blow and the guy nursed hate for you forever and he might have like not even remember it <laughs> well um maybe we'll have him on the podcast and we'll have you back on the podcast then you guys can see well i haven't been invited to be on dan pen oceans thing that he's the regular on and i'm like huh i wonder <laughs> drink and draw you know yeah. right right um do you remember I well i remember i since i know you i know you worked partially also when you were in California with Russ Manning, but I take it that was before you went to New York. Yes. Okay. So you did start having some experience then when you were even before New York working in, in comics with the guys who lived in LA, right? Some of the guys. Actually I was inking comic books at Disney when I was like 17 or something. I was still in high school. Hmm. Um, Disney had their own, um, uh, publication unit where they would feed art to foreign publishers like the Dutch and stuff like that were wanted so much of this material and gold key wasn't I don't even know if they're an entity anymore but they weren't producing enough for them um, so they would hire Disney directly and I was an inker for them and they would send me pencils on tissue and I would have to ink them on a light box so um, that that was a a job that was just made in heaven at first except that i really hated inking on a light box it it got to my eyes after a while even at that young age Mm. oh yeah yeah it's it's like it's stress it's a lot of stress can you please have a pencil on paper and let me ink the stuff directly and they just they put up with me because i was so young you know because they just they just would laugh and say no bill this is how how we do it so you kind of have to do it that way (laughs) (laughs) and i would go in there and say i might like carl barks and they go "Uh, uh, uh, we don't really like carl barks here so please don't mention his name he's not the duck man you know and i'm like i was so completely giant on carl carl barks i couldn't believe it Mm. it was another one of these double-edged swords almost like the thiexton thing where wait, I'm here working at the place. I, I'm doing what I always wanted to do. And they're sitting there slagging the greatest artist, Disney artist of all time. And I can't even mention him like he's Hitler or something, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and it was like, 
I, I was still could be, I was, that was maybe the most stunning thing that had ever happened to me as a young man uh, about the real world, if you want to call working at Disney the real world, you know. But I was only there for a while because when they wouldn't change uh, for me, of course, um, I just, I heard that Russ needed people and I went to work with him, with Rick Hobart, who was penciling stuff and I became Rick's main anchor. We were buddies back then and kind of doing samples together and that kind of thing. And so we would ape Russ as close as we could. So this is and when he was Dave doing Stevens, Tarzan? Dave Stevens was working there. I'm sorry. Was that when he was doing tar the Tarzan newspaper strip? Yeah, it was the same thing. He was packaging. They wanted more Russ Manning in the, in the foreign market. The foreign market was very strong then for everybody. And so they wanted tons more Russ Manning style art was the theory. So he was even forcing guys like Alex Nino to try to draw like Russ Manning, which or Mike Plug, which didn't really work. Yeah. So, and, and there's a famous story about Alex Toth penciling for him and then Russ saying how he would have to change the stuff to look more like him and Alex tearing up every page of the art in front of him and leaving. <laughs> and I actually knew Alex then. <laughs> and... I was so excited that I had gotten a job with Russ and did not know about his problems with Russ. I went running over to his house to tell him all about it. And when I told him I was running for Russ Manning, the room just went to black shit. It was just like, all of a sudden, he'd always been nice to me. I'd never seen the bipolar thing. And it was just like, it was like, if the three stooges were truly dark side you know <laughs> slowly i turned you know, it was step by step <laughs> don't you know this guy he's a terrible artist what do you want to work for him for and i'm like eh. you know alex i love you i'm 17 stop <laughs> <laughs> do you do you remember what you got paid for inking that disney stuff do you have an you remember your page 16 rate? bucks a page wow Maybe 13 bucks Hey guys, I want to jump in real quick. Uh, sure. A follow up question. Uh, Rock Perkins asks Bill, why were they like that about Barks? Disapproving unites. Like, like where'd that attitude come from about Carl? Uh, Rock Perkins, thanks for the question. Uh, Rock's been in my plein air painting class. He's a hell of a portrait painter. Um, but he, 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 like, he likes ephemeral like this, which is cool talking to him. Mm. Um, yeah. You know, because of that wall of silence, it was hard for, I just, it was a subjective thing for me to tell you why, mm -hmm. but corporate, it, it, we've all worked for corporate um, and they don't like any artist to be identified with their characters as the guy beyond Walt and maybe a by works a little bit with a caveat, mm -hmm. but they created Donald Duck, not Barks. Mm -hmm. So please don't call him the Duck Man. Please don't give him credit for doing what he did. And it may have had something to do with them trying to define the legal situation with those paintings he started to do for fans. Mm -hmm. Because that was probably around that same time. Oh, That's okay. Yes. And that was a thorny thing for a while. And then until they finally worked out the big deal with Disney and they finally embraced Barks because they were getting a cut. Mm. But all of that had to be worked out at that point. So that's about the best I can say about that. 
um, they had very specific things because part two to that conversation was I would like to, you know, this ballsy at 17, I'd like to submit some story ideas. And they're like, oh, oh, um, well, Bill, okay, uh, sure. But would you mind if we give you some advice? <laughs> and I'm like, oh, yeah, of course, I want advice. And they're like, just do the stories with Donald and his family. Do them around the house. Because I immediately wanted to do the Karl Barth style around the world adventures with square chickens in space or whatever the fuck it was. You know? right. and, and they're like, no, no, we don't do that. No, just do a story about him getting a mail, his mail and something goes wrong. <laughs> and I had no fucking idea what that meant. I did not know. And now, or you know, not 10 years, like 10 or 15 years later, back then, I know exactly what they meant. And it's actually really good advice, but um, they didn't explain to me character, you know. Do a story about a character, set up a simple conflict with another regular character, and then have a resolve. You know, I, they didn't say that, you know. Just do a story around the house. And so I didn't even submit anything. I didn't even, I just, back then I was young, impetuous, stupid, angry, so angry. Uh, about my fucked up, you know, family life. And so I had no patience for anybody. If things didn't work out for me, I just moved on to the next thing. So, oh yeah, I'm at Disney. Great. Goodbye. <laughs> so now you were also working in, did you, were you working in uh, Hanna-Barbera back then too? Because I, they had that trainee program, I think, back in the early 80s. Because I, I, I lasted for about 10 minutes at, at Hanna-Barbera. Um, Again, due to the volatility and the, the pranksterism that I had going, too. Mm -hmm. uh, I knew this guy named George Gepper. He, he was a Disney animator, and he worked. This is too long of a story, but we met at a place where he was teaching, and he recommended me at Hanna-Barbera. They gave me an in-betweener job immediately. I started in-betweening. I liked it for a week, and then I couldn't stand in-betweening after that. And, and I never really truly even understood how to do it. I was flipping drawings. Like I, I was an animator, but I basically was just putting the line in between the other lines, you know, instead of just always like that. Not mm -hmm. not not reading the the, uh, the notes correctly and mm -hmm. uh, okay. the different spaces, one closer to the other versus right in the middle, right in the middle, right in the middle. Uh, and but they didn't care. They didn't notice it was a sausage factory. And mm -hmm. I'm like, let me out of here, guys. Rick Holberg was working there. Dave Stevens was working there. Um who else? They're all working for Doug Wildey on Godzilla. And they got me in there to try out doing a storyboard to try not to make too long of a story. It was Sheena of the Jungle. A lion had a thorn in its paw. And Sheena had, for this one sequence that caused me the trouble, the, 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 she pulls the thorn out and gets, you know, it's that old story gets the loyalty of the lion after that. Mm -hmm. And as a joke, because Doug and I, I found out Doug was funny, Doug Wiley. And everybody loved him because you could just crack jokes with him the whole time. And I thought, oh, D Doug will love this. I drew a panel and pasted it over the top of the finished panel, of, as I just described. But it showed the, the, this huge spurt of blood squirting all over everybody, you know, this 
you know, the giant holding uh, the, the lion holding its paw with this wounded gory hand <laughs> a paw, and thought this was funny, you know, as a, as a young man and ended up working on this thing. I took me way longer to do the board than I thought. I'd never done it before. It was blocked out for me, but by a pro, but the drawing wasn't good. And I just did a, I kind of made a mess of it there, but I stayed up all night for a week and got it done. And forgot that I had done that joke. I went to see Russ, uh, uh, not Russ, um, Doug, and gave him the board and passed out, literally. <laughs> <laughs> and had to be woken up and like take, like go home. Okay, we'll look at this board. You don't need to go over it with me because it's too late. I'm going to be sending it to network today. I'm like, okay. Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> He didn't even look through it. He didn't have the time. He didn't have time for fixes, nothing. He just wow. sent it through. And the networks called him back screaming, what's this thing with the lion paw bleeding all over the place? And he goes, fuck you. There's no lion paw with it bleeding all over the place. Like that. He went up against him. He didn't know who you were. Fuck you. And then he had to fucking eat crow. So I was summarily fired. And that was wow. me at Hanna-Barbera as a layout artist as anything. Because later I went to get a job with um, a guy I really admired. He, he, was a, he, he was an assistant for Walt Kelly, and he was kind of the head of things there in layout. Mm. And I thought it all died. died must, must have died. It was like six months, a year later, maybe. Uh, still pretty fresh, but I thought as, as a kid, that, oh, it's a long time. It won't, it won't be a thing. You know, Everybody says how great Doug is. I can understand how he'd been mad at me at the time. But uh, what's the guy's name? Anyway, I'm sorry, I can't think of his name, but he's like, we're going to hire you, Bill. You're great. And, and uh, you know, you're a little green still, but there's some things we can teach you. And uh, translation, the layout isn't too hard here if you just follow the model sheets and the storyboard and just trace shit a lot. You know? um, so he comes back in the office. He goes to the says, just, just one minute, though. I got to check with somebody. And he comes back and he's got this long look on his face and he just says, Oh, it turns out we don't really have, we're not hiring for layout right now. And I went, let's say Dan, I don't know what it was. Uh, Dan, did you just go in and talk to Doug Wildey? And his face just went, you know, uh, <laughs> yeah, I did. And I went, okay. And uh, I said, I don't blame you. I really like you. I understand the system of power here. And so that was it. I never got to work for this guy who, who really would have taught me something because, um, this sounds vindictive in my old age after all this time to say this about Doug, but Doug couldn't draw very well. And he was kind of a faker. He could do drawings from photo reference and stuff like that, but he wasn't going to be the guy who sat down with you and taught you how to draw really well. I mean, maybe, maybe he did that with people, but that's my speculation from his actual quality of his work. Um, mean thing to say, I suppose, because he's kind of beloved in his way. And this was tough because I was really good friends with Dave Stevens then, and that guy was like his dad. And then, and I was really good friends with Rick Holberg, and he loved him too. And I was good friends with this guy named Paul Power, who was there, and he loved him too. Everybody loved Doug Wilde. What was my problem, you know? So, anyway, I was blackballed from Hanna Barbera for quite some time after that. So later on, when we would ask you, and when you fill out a job application, have you ever worked for us before? <laughs> What would you put uh, down? Yeah, talk to Stingy Doug Wildy. Great recommendation. <laughs> um, I just never even tried 
much more at Hanna-Barbera until they were bought by Turner and run by um, uh, the guy who was running MTV. What's his name? Fred Seibert. Mm-hmm. When, when he was in charge, I pitched him a show to one of his minions and they absolutely fucking loved it. It was a Flintstones thing. And then I got blackballed again because it turned out that 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 guy we will get to talking about, John Kay, the creator of Ren and Stimpy, quote unquote, uh, had put the blackball in for me on that project. So it went from them running around, taking me office to office, so fucking excited. I'd never seen any like it was going to be greenlit. They knew that they knew the idea was perfect for what they wanted to do. And then, then to them never talking to me again, ever. So it was like, man, I can't even get in a Hanna-Barbera in a whole new iteration owned by a completely different company with completely different people. <laughs> but of course you eventually, you, you, you end up doing stuff sort of, I guess, in a roundabout way because you're doing like consumer product or you're doing, you did, you know, you've done stuff that way, right? For Warner uh, Brothers consumer own. products for Hanna Barbera characters. Yeah, right. Haven't you no. done stuff? just Scooby and Bugs and? Yeah, I did stuff for Warner Brothers um, for a little while. A lot of full color paintings of uh, Bugs Bunny or whatever. You know, um, there's a couple of them. There's one or two of them on my old website, Big Blown Baby, for context. But um, yeah, that was kind of a cool gig. They paid well. And um, they recognized right away to give me the stuff that looked classic, that I probably wouldn't do something that looked just like how they were doing it now. Mm-hmm. So I was sort of classified as the classic guy and ended up happening a lot later. So, so yeah, here and there, I got to do cool stuff with the old characters. So you were doing all that, blowing up uh, Hanna-Barbera in uh, L.A. Then you go, <laughs> you go to... New York. Then you eventually go back to L.A. And it wasn't too long after that that you were doing um, Ren and Stimpy, right? Well, John had a secretary call me when he was working for Ralph Bakshi on Mighty Mouse. If you remember, that was the show yep. that kind of got him his start. Um, before that, we were really good friends and partners, um, although he won't admit that anymore. But um, we did a, a short film together where I knew he was going to be the talent and the director. And so I let him direct uh, this cartoon. It was on an early cable station that supposedly evolved into HBO eventually. It was a comedy blackout show. We did this little cartoon. And that little t- cartoon got him, ended up getting him a job at, at Hanna-Barbera doing the, uh, one of those middle iterations of the Jetsons reboot. And then that got him Beanie and Cecil, which exploded immediately. And then that got him Mighty Mouse. And Mighty Mouse, they called me and asked me to work on that. And I told them, I didn't want to leave. I was happy in New York. I was going to school. I was doing really well in comics for what I did. Uh, I had a great girlfriend. I didn't want to leave. And I knew John even enough by then to know that uh, working for him might be a dangerous proposition. And so I said, I want $500 a week to come out there. And they just laughed at me. Because back then, that was a phenomenal sum of money. Uh, we're talking late 80s. And, uh, but then they called me again for Ren and Stimpy. And at that point, I was um, having difficulties in my relationship. And comics were still doing good for me and everything. But I was at 
I didn't feel like I was getting anywhere just being a comic book colorist and that kind of stuff, even though I was on some prestige jobs like coloring in Bernie Wrightson and stuff like that. Um, but Ren and Stimpy was the thing. I had a little bit to do with the original co-creation of it. This was the kind of stuff John and I and our friend Jim Gomez and his, were other, our other buddies, a guy named uh, Garneau, I forget his first name. No, that's one of Jim's, never mind. Um, I can't think of that other guy's name. Um, but he sold this thing to Nickelodeon. And it was the kind of thing that if we had, if I had stayed in California, I would have been one of the partners in that venture to do that. I'm quite sure of that. But I kind of abandoned John to go to New York and follow my dream as an artist and as, as going to school because I didn't think he would ever, we or he would ever sell anything. I just didn't think the animation business wanted to rent and Stimpy. And they didn't, except for Nickelodeon, who was these far thinking women who weren't sort of tainted by the business. They were just given the power to do it. They jumped in and they greenlit a couple of offbeat shows and we were one of them. So that, and he offered me the job of being head of my department. I went to work for him. So what were what were you what were you contributing in the beginning? Do you remember? Uh, yeah, that example you just put up on the screen is a video box. That's a little bit later, right? But um, yeah, that was when I was working over at Games Productions and uh, did that did that for a video box cover, but. Um, at the beginning, no, I was just a background, running the background department. And it was tough because he had hired two young women who were very, very green and very, very angry. And they would not take criticism from me. And they would try to go around me and meet, meet with John. And I'm not going to go into that too deeply. But the second season, I had to let them go or never rehire them. And I hired Glenn Barr. And I hired Scott Wills, both of them who've gone on to greater things. And, uh, you know, Scott Wills is the go-to guy for Gandhi Tartakovsky. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah I started Samurai Jack, had to leave to do my own pilot. And I, I started uh, as an art director-ish background guy on Samurai Jack. And then I had to leave to do my own cartoon, and I got Scott Wills in there. And so Scott ended up grabbing it and making it his own and doing the incredible things with that show. And then had a incredible career ever since i consider him the best background painter in the business and, and really good you know, one, of the, one of the things i wanted to ask you about was you know beforehand you'd been doing all this drawing pretty straightforward drawing penciling inking when did you really get into doing the the color stuff and studying the color knowing how to work with the cell vinyl which is not easy to work with did somebody I, show you that stuff Au contraire, um, cell vinyl is great to paint with. You just got to put the time into it like anything. Um, I love it. It was the best acrylic ever made as far as I was concerned. But that's how everybody feels about that tool they end up using as their main color thing or whatever favorite pencil. I don't know. But, you know, um, I was shown how to paint with that stuff kind of. Another one of these millions of jobs that I had when I was a young man living in Studio City uh, by this guy named Ron Diaz, who was uh, an ex-Disney guy who, like many of them, uh, people in the animation business is totally seasonal for the people that don't know, particularly back then. You'd work like three quarters of the year and then you'd fuck off during the summer. You know, rents were dirt cheap, so you could do that. And, and um, 
you, you would do a million freelance jobs here and there. And I'd heard that he was looking for people to help him on some short he was doing for somebody. And he just gave me a couple of layouts and just said, this is how I paint them. And he gave me a little lesson, but not really much. And as he just said, just go home and paint them. And I'm like, I kind of bluffed my way through it. I had a few little paint, painty things in my portfolio, but not much. Mm -hmm. And honestly, it's going to sound weirdly, bizarrely self-serving, but the guy was uh, just recently exploded out of the closet, as my friend George Gipper used to say. And um, I was a attractive young lad. And so, <laughs> <laughs> and it, it turned out that, that that move was made on me at a certain point. And he would take my paintings and kind of beef them up a little bit because that was the great thing about um, cell vinyl is you just paint right over the top of it and fix other backgrounds easy. So in a way, it's like if a colorist is working with someone who blocks in their colors on computer now, it's like they almost don't care what they're given because all the cutting out's been done so great. Mm -hmm, I'll just mm -hmm. work my magic over the top. And how, all of us have heard that about particularly guys who have had to done a lot of assistant work or worked with assistants, you know, you, as long as they're okay, you can make it work, you know, mm -hmm. particularly if they have a good work ethic, that's almost the more important thing. Um, um, I don't Bill, know if I finished that thread. I'm kind of wandering off. I have a super, I have a super long question. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I'm going to, I'm going to try to paraphrase. Okay. And, uh, so uh, Paul McKinney from the web uh, from the Facebook site uh, is a big fan of yours, a big Ren and Stimpy fan, and uh, is now uh, working in the business as a motion graphics designer. And your your name, Bill, is the first name he googles when he wants inspiration for backgrounds. Uh, he his question is, how did you enjoy the creative process working on Ren and Stimpy, both before and after Spunko? And could you compare the two eras of the show from your perspective? Thanks for your question, Paul. Um, yeah, it's, I've done it this many times. So people have heard these stories. I hope it's not too horribly boring. But when we were first doing Ren and Stimpy, I had John Kay was my boss. He was my art director. And he said, you have a free hand. You run in this thing. No, he ran it. And we've all been through this, you know, the, the, the person, the artist who's hiring us or the company or whatever it is. We love your work. Now be somebody else. You know, mm. um, <laughs> here's the style we want, even though we hired you and you don't. But in this case with John, what I did, I had done a lot of presentations for him in the past on our own projects and stuff like that. He knew what he was getting into to with me. He knew my opinion. He knew what I was capable of. He knew I loved the old Hanna-Barbera and Warner Brothers stuff. And, and the thing that I had not gotten into was Little Golden Books. So we took the Little Golden Books and we stylized painting, literally ripping that stuff off wherever we could. <laughs> and so that was sort of the look of Ren and Stimpy was the three of those style windows, um, eras, some smashed together. And maybe one cartoon would be a little more Hanna-Barbera, one would be a little more Warner Brothers, one would be UPA, whatever the fuck. Mm -hmm. And what was hilarious is that John was well, not hilarious, but John would always sit down with me to teach me how to paint. Now, John doesn't know how to paint. However, he can see color beautifully in his head. Mm -hmm. He can see everything beautifully in his head, but he couldn't always execute it. Um, if, he, if he could show you how to do a layout drawing, that was better than anybody at the studio by, by far, um, except maybe Bob Camp and, and Jim Smith. Okay, but 
still his drawing was so fluid then so he was so on fire and so happy to be finally doing a cartoon and doing it his way it was a pleasure to work for him despite his being a really demanding person um but he had a temper he would take i would show him a color key and he would take and throw it across the room you know he would he was very patronizing at times where if he actually did one he liked he would write a check he would put a big check on it and write approved underneath it john k and, and it's just like okay and but i was t saying before he would sit down and he would show you like a book on nature photography and mm -hmm. it would have beautiful colors but it would be a photograph you know and he wants you to synthesize it down into a stylized painting and he would start to show me he'd get my color out and he'd be playing around and he goes, here you do this and then you do that and you do this Long story short, after 15 minutes of cursing and struggling and making a big, dark, bloody mess, that he would just throw up his hands and say, oh, you know how to do it, and then he would leave. And we went through that again and again. Him showing me how to paint, kind of failing with showing that. And then I'd be, I just came to expect it. And then I would just do what I do and, mm -hmm. you know, but he would, he would, it would be lovely things like, I want you to paint a pristine white background. This is bathroom. I want it to look like gleaming white, glowing white. But don't just use white. <laughs> and, uh, um, in fact, I may have even said that wrong. He would say, uh, I think I just flipped it. I think it was something like, only use white. Oh, gotcha. Yeah, yeah. And I would say, well, to make it gleaming, I have to have other color to contrast so it will pop out from this other if it's all white it won't really look like anything but a blank page and so you would do them over and over again to try to make him happy doing it the way that was impossible to do until he finally just gave up and you had to just you did it the right way and then he would accept it um there's a famous story about a cartoon with stimpy's birthday where he where he would uh yeah this is the work i did later for um story Corps in new york in the, okay uh, uh, 2010 ish time or so. Um, he, he would, uh, oh, there was a uh, Stimpy's birthday party. The ink and painters had to do uh, Portfield Wang, the head of ink, ink and paint, ended up running SpongeBob for the last 20, 30 years, um, had to do this present. And every time she'd color key it, it rejected because it had to be the most warm, wonderful present that had ever been drawn or painted. And he was okay with the drawing, but it had to be painted in this, this color combination that none of us could figure out what it was, mm -hmm. but it had to make him happy. Was that one yeah, too that's there? That's the era of Ren and Stimpy, but that actual painting was painted by Scott Wills. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, uh, I did the color key for it. And then he did the, 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 the final painting of it. I have one of them here. I got one of those... Uh... Uh, I think gross, gross ones. I think I had of a uh, big close-up of Stimpy. I tried to pull, pull that up. Oh, uh, here's here's a this is a Samurai Jack one, I guess. Yeah, uh, that's a color rough for the first year of Samurai Jack, I believe. That was when after my uh, turning over the job to Scott Wills and doing my pilot. For, for Cartoon Network that didn't get picked up. 
uh, I was back to looking around for work. And so they let me color keys some shows. And so that was one of them. I guess that's one of the things that people sort of don't even remember in a way is that, um, oh, here's your, I always love this. Here's your. This is much more recent. Um, <laughs> the, 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 it's funny that you, this would come up now. It's, it's out of order, but it doesn't matter. I did this thing with Ashley Wood a couple of years ago. It was a one shot. We thought we were going to do it as a regular comic book, but it was an oversized book, beautifully printed, although it was a little bit dark overall. Um, but um, it took a bath because Ashley hadn't calculated um, how much it would cost to ship yeah. <laughs> around the world. So he didn't make any money on it. So there was never a second issue. But we're actually going to do bring, bring the book back, reprint the material that I did and put it in a smaller format about the size of old golden age comics. Okay. And I'm going to be doing new material for it in a minute now, but this thing, King crab was the character that I did for the cartoon network as a pilot. Right. And, uh, this is me doing King crab much more adult. Just the way I would want to do it. <laughs> and the funny thing is, is that I don't exactly remember if this was the case. This might be self aggrandizing. But when they were talking to me about my show, they were figuring out how to do Adult Swim. And it wasn't called Adult Swim yet, but they knew they wanted to do something at night. And I was supposed to be doing this King Crab cartoon as one of the lead shows for that. But in the end, we couldn't, uh, he just, I just couldn't make the, 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 the network guy happy. And uh, even though it stayed in development for like a year. And then in the end, and then they started out doing stuff like Space Coast, Coast to Coast, and uh, Japanese stuff, which is cheap to buy. And part of the reason mine might have gotten dumped is that I actually did want a regular budget on, on it, a regular cartoon show budget. Mm. And that was not in the cards for, for uh, Adult Swim. So here's one of your classic bugs, I take it? That would be an exactly good example for what we talked about um, of the stuff for Warner's licensing. So, uh, and does that sell vinyl too? That's sell vinyl. And so I'm I'm also interested in I'm also interested in um, where you think you really started noticing or paying attention to color. Uh, color. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I give credit to color to LSD. Um, that's that taught me complementary colors because I don't know if any of you guys have taken LSD and maybe you'd want to keep that information to yourself. I don't know. <laughs> no, I I never but, I never took I never took LSD. I had friends I, in high school that did, but I never did. No. You can conceive of the concept that it increased your color awareness because it, it LSD it makes you aware of everything in the whole world. At least if you if your mind you think you're suddenly like. The whole world is fake and phony, and I'm the only guy who knows, you know, uh, that that the whole secret of life is in this potted plant right here. Look at this. This is an ecosystem, you know. And it's like we got stuck. We took LSD. We were in the mountains. It was raining really hard, and we were stuck in our car. So we just stared at rain droplets going down the front window, and they were this purest form of teal blue 
and blue green and the 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 highlight not the highlight but the in the shadow portion of the raindrop and the reflected light it was pure red and you know blue green and red are the are more or less complementary colors and so that's when I figured out, oh, I need to pay attention to this complementary color thing. And after that, I pretty much right away could color things pretty well knowing that information. I mean, that's a, that's a big one that a lot of artists don't even know. I mean, maybe they know it more now, but um, you know, I would find all my life lots of different colorists who were professional colorists who really didn't know color and know basics like that. So yeah, LSD. Well, uh, Bill, I and wanted copy, to you know copying the stuff that I loved, you know, like we all did when we were first figuring it out. I used uh, to copy Leindecker with marker drop paintings because I didn't know how to paint. Uh, Bill, uh, Luis Luis Sanchez uh, kind of jumped into the same topic we're talking about, and wanted to know. Sorry about that. Wanted to know if you could describe the main differences between your studio work and your landscapes and how you develop your palettes for the latter, why or how you choose your colors. So you kind of answered a little bit of that, but uh, maybe uh, touch on the difference in your personal painting work and studio work. Well, so by studio, I'm guessing, you're, and, and by how you phrased it, studio, you mean cartoon studio versus fine art? Uh, uh, yeah, I was saying landscapes and studio, and I'm like, I call my paintings in my studio, my studio work. So I say you're, yeah, I would say you're fine, your fine yeah. artwork versus, you know, a Warner Brothers gig or something like that. Um, kind of like when I was doing Ren and Stimpy, the whole complementary color thing I just described was kind of just inherent. I hadn't, even though I had had it in a class and art and about it in in. Um, JC, I had not really absorbed it because I felt like I knew it. You know, it was sort of an, an arrogant thing. But then, then at a certain point doing it with John, I got frustrated with not being able to communicate with him on this level that he was trying to figure out. Mm -hmm. So I went back and kind of cracked the books a little bit and just said, oh yeah, what's a complimentary color again? Let's memorize the color wheel, not just do it by gut. You know, and, and, mm. and I said, well, I know all of this, but somehow I just hadn't formed it as some sort of working hypothesis that was conscious. It was mm. unconscious. Mm. And so, but, but that knowledge, and I will tell anybody who I'm teaching in my fine art workshops or whatever, it's all complementary color. You know, I, I mentioned it before in both scenarios and, and it's a really simple idea when you're doing a plain air landscape painting, plain air for the people who don't know means going outside and doing a little painting of a landscape, is you go, what's the major compliments here? Is this a red and green painting? And then you just kind of stick to that and then you do split compliments after that. Hmm. So um, so I brought up two here. It's obviously here. more complex than that, but it, it, it's, it's kind of that, like in this case of this is a recent flower painting, the red on the greens is going to be the dominant theme, you know, so because that works so well together. And yellow and green uh, being in the middle, split complements works well. 
But I also noticed you use a lot of, I mean, even on the Brennan Stimpy stuff, you had a lot of uh, tertiary colors, which were sort of, you know, uh, mixing the secondary colors together. And then you would bring back a primary color. And that really would, you know, then it would really pop. You know, you would get, um, I know that that's something uh, that you are pushing even more in, in these paintings, you, you can see it in the one of Supergirl, you know, you have those sort of warm, almost monochromatic background, but yeah, but it's color, slightly warm. Yeah, well, that's a, actually a very good point, Mike. It's it's uh, when you're painting a background for a cartoon, and, and obviously, I guess for my fine art too, is you want to direct the eye to the viewer, you want to. You've established your, your, in your mind as you're doing this painting, at least you should, as saying, well, where's the main point of interest that I want the viewer to look at? If I'm doing the street scene, it's probably that car that's right in the center of the painting. Well, I don't want to put it in the center. I'll put it off to the one direction or another. I don't want to put it in the, the center of the horizon. I'll make it lower or higher. But I want you to look here. And right. um, there'll be some... In the Bugs Bunny painting, it might just be his red tongue, you know. It, it, so there would always be a color accent. So, like, this is what you're talking about here. Like, you have these very the, the main building is a little warmer, right? But that was that's not a particularly great Maybe example of leading the eye, as I called it, because it's a, a long establishing shot to get a feeling. But yeah, this the building in the middle, the reddish building, is the main story. So, you notice the doorway is more elaborate. Uh, we're going to go into this building, and that's kind of where I wanted you to look. Mm -hmm. um, on this cartoon, I particularly wanted this to look dreary because these buildings are about to be knocked down by the city as being slums. So the, the, the buildings that are framing them are more dreary yet, so they'll go in the background. And then the elements in the back background, shall we say, are almost transparent, even though Maybe that green building back there is a little too much detail on the roof. It might be popping. But what I, what I notice is I see this. I see like these colors are a little are sort of comp of the complements of each other, but they're like tertiary colors, and they sort of they kind of bounce and they, they bounce against this color. So when, as soon as you put that little hotness in there, that warmth, it really it really pops. And you do a lot cool. of this where you you get this this bounce between this and this. Uh, Paul McKinney uh, asks, can you elaborate, Bill, on what you mean by split the complement? Um, if I said split the complements, that was a mistake um, to use split complements. In other words, on the color wheel, when you look on the opposite side, you're seeing green on one side, red on the other. There's colors next to them, gradations of colors next to them, right? On either side. So the split complements are that very next set of colors next to the main complement. Mm. I don't know if that makes it clear. Mm. That's a slang term. So somebody else might call it something else. Okay. Well, I also think that that um, you 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 know like when you started going into your uh, your fine art. Your more fine art stuff, um, I do think that, at least to me, seeing your work and seeing your 
gosh, your progress over what 15 or more 20 years almost now of you really pushing the fine art stuff. Um, I can, I think that the working with the, the bright color, the brighter colors you often see in animation, um, uh, gave your stuff an edge. Well, like you're showing now, two older ones, and then the flower one is much more recent. Right. Um, the the one of the um, shopping cart, which was used in a Larry David movie, by the way. Which is, uh, but back then, uh, I was, as you can see, more interested in a bit more of a realistic muted palette. And then doing exactly what you're talking about, picking one element, the red cart, as being the star of the show. And in this case, there's several elements to what, why, how I framed this shopping cart. The white in the foreground and the little sort of shape between the shadow and the white is kind of pointing at the cart. And the, and the, the light against dark spot is at the tip of that spear, shall we say, of pointing at the cart. The lines of the parking spaces are underlying the cart. The big heavy car at the top is framing and pressing down on the car. The line between the sidewalk is another separation device that focuses in on literally kind of that triangle shape. Right. Where that where that um, cart lives on the park. And then you're breaking the triangle just a little bit. Yeah. Well, I do you do other little things sometimes consciously, sometimes unconsciously to try to make it somewhat subtle in what you're doing. But that's, you know, that's, that's, most of that stuff is really deliberate. And I love these ones. I think my favorite one still is that one you did that had, a, I couldn't find a copy of it, but it had all the, had the blimps in it and everything. I really liked these because it's this, uh, uh, it feels, the spectrum feels very LA to me. Like, uh, yeah. if you look at an Andrew Wyeth painting, and you're familiar with this area. If you if you see that his color spectrum looks like Pennsylvania. It doesn't look like the Southwest. It doesn't look like Detroit. It doesn't look like it looks like Pennsylvania. And when I see this, it makes me feel L.A. Mostly just because of that 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 weird that weird color. Well, that's L.A. color because we would get those gray days and a lot of air pollution. So things can look kind of green. And if you notice, there's, there's some, that disgusting smoggy yellow tones, which actually can be quite beautiful in a painting, but mm. not so good when you think about breathing it. <laughs> um, but there's, there's a uh, little purple tone back there, pinkish tone yeah, in the sky. Right. Yeah. So purple is the complement of yellow and then green works with red because purple is not so far from red and yellow, you know? So if I was pushed, I would say that's a green and purple painting, despite the kind of yellow dominance of that sun peeking through there. Now, was there a point though, at which like you were studying what I, what I call like the aha moment when you're painting where, you know, maybe when you first started, you wouldn't maybe have started out with using such a subtle I means like, these subtle grays here, you know, and everything's sort of pushing warm or pushing cool, even if it's a complement of each other. I mean, that's very sophisticated. And I, and you know, 
you probably wouldn't do that when you were first starting out, right? I mean, was there a, was there an artist or a, uh, uh, somebody you studied with or somebody you were studying that sort of led you to this? Mike, well, can you make the whole screen for that for Bill's image there? Yeah, green button it. Go ahead, Bill. I'm sorry. Yeah. Well. Um, yeah. This was this was well into my fine art career, shall we say, maybe four or five years in. At around 44 years old, 45 years old, pretty late in life to say, Jesus fucking Christ, what am I? Am I ever going to be a fine artist? And I had noticed that there was this plain air thing that was going on. I think we all did at some point or another and realized I just never thought there was another art market out there beyond contemporary art. I didn't know. I lived in New York for a long time. And then when I was in LA, my head was just to the grindstone, you know, and it turns out there was this sort of secondary art world where people wanted traditional painting. And they were going outside and they were painting typical outside subjects um, of waterfalls and, and green trees and whatever it might be. So for a while I plunged into that, but I said, this is not, as I was learning how to paint a little bit more, this is not what I want to do. I decided to do the urban thing, which ended up becoming a much bigger thing as the years went by. I didn't start that, but I was one of the first players in it. Um, but to the point of the question, um, blah, 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 blah. well, um, the, go ahead, Bill. Let's just just rephrase, say the question again. I'm sorry. I said, well, was 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 there a specific? Well, I mean, oh, I know teacher. you. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Or or an artist you were looking to, an artist you were when looking. I went to. back to, to to when I said I'm going to start doing this fine art thing. I didn't know what the fuck I was doing. I last time I painted in oils was at the art students league when I was a kid and every few years I would like take a canvas out and try to do a painting of like a nearby, like right in front of my house, I would paint a, a mountain or whatever. And it would just be fucking terrible. Just be awful. And so I said, I have got to get a refresher course. And I took a guy named Ray Roberts and he's, he's still around. He's a really good, we're about the same age actually. Um, He's a really good painter of California scenes, particularly. Uh, he, he knows how to make beach scenes and stuff, not seem insipid. They're really actually fucking beautiful. Well, his uh, wife is very good, too. Yeah, Peggy Kroll is great. Um, kind of more. She was always kind of a little bit more of the quote unquote cruder artist in a certain way, but also more dare, daring and interesting style wise than he was, whereas his was more old school. I, of course, for years preferred his work, but then I came around to her later once I got a little more sophisticated in my taste. But I just did that. I did a whole series of workshops with different painters. A guy named George Strickland taught me how to do a little tiny color key before I went straight into painting. Um, the basics that I kind of knew but wasn't doing. Um, uh, Carolyn Anderson, I went to two of her workshops. She is fantastic. Um, so I just kept doing that. Every time I take a workshop, I got a little better. Hey, uh, Bill, uh, your, your boy Rock Perkins asked another question. If you could list some of the book titles that you can find these paintings in. Um, well, you have two, I, three books I, now, right? I've got 
lots of books, but um, the three main uh, available books that I have left would be Dirty Beauty, Abstract, uh, Sparrows Out of Print, and another one I did um, uh, that's escaping. God, how can I not know that name? I could get up and leave the screen and go look <laughs> in my closet, but I'm not going to do that. Um, it may come to me. You could go but get it and check show to, everybody. You have to show me which the painting again if I want to if he wants to know which exactly book that they're in. I, I keep, guess. I think uh I think it was the LA the LA um clean air. Yeah, but, that one, the green one we were talking about, that might be in Sparrow, but I'd have to double check. It, it all gets mixed up in my mind. Mm. But I've done tons of books with Ashley Wood too, but it's like they're not they're hard to get because he didn't get distributed. You had to buy them directly from his website. Mm -hmm. So, and that was mostly my superhero stuff, but I did a little bit of both with him. Yeah, and then the Sparrow was the first thing we did together, but that was actually distributed by IDW. Bill, can you talk a little bit about your uh, experience with your fine artwork in doing gallery shows? How do you feel about that world? Or does it really, uh, have a good correlation between comic book conventions <laughs> or yeah. even the fandom. Well, like is the fandom different for your fine art work versus your comic book work or uh, animation it's quite work? Different. Um, I have I've always had this Don Quixote type uh, quest to get because I know so many art dealers and art collectors because I'm a comic book art collector myself mm -hmm. and like you guys, you know. Uh, we, we've always picked up art we admired over the years. And um, I thought there must be one of these, some of these people who I could convince, like with my superhero paintings or something, that this would be something they'd want to collect. Mm -hmm. And that's been very difficult. It has happened. There's been a couple of guys who have bought things from me, mm -hmm. um, bought my fine art. Mm -hmm. um, but um, those guys want to buy who they like, John Burner, Jack Kirby, or, or, or all that stuff that they like. They'll pay ungodly amounts of money for it. And, um, but uh, getting them to cross over to what I do um, doesn't quite work. I, I would say that you can't really compare those markets, even. but in the auction world, you can. You can mm -hmm. compare fine art with comic book collecting art now that the money has gone so insane on comic book art. Mm -hmm. I would compare it to a small time version of Christie's, you know, heritage, you know, whatever. Um, mm -hmm. So that's sort of a thing, but um, I don't really know. I don't know if you guys can think of any there there's Vince Gerano. Uh, right. He, he did draw comics his, and now he does fine art and he's doing pretty well doing yeah. New York paintings of, of leather clad girls and their graffiti part of their graffiti buildings. Pretty nice paintings. Mm -hmm. Um, and then there's uh, maybe the most famous one. Um, oh, the guy who used to work at Marvel who kind of draws like, God, he's going to, he, he won't see this, but uh, I can't believe I'm blanking on his name right now. But he, he, he kind of, when he was first doing fine art, he drew like, drew and painted like Egon Sheila. Um, Ken. Kent Williams? Kent Williams, yeah. Kent Williams. Um, he went, he made the jump from comics to fine art. Mm -hmm. but that list gets short pretty quick. I know that Brett considered it for a while and was doing it uh, 
with local galleries. Wasn't that right, Brett? Is he? All right, try one more time, Brett. Your mic is turned off. There you yeah, go. well, it keeps going. It keeps going off, and I keep. I see the little bar going. Oh, you're good. You're good. Yeah, I did. I did it for a while. I was in two or three galleries, but then um, everything got derailed, and my wife uh, became ill. Yeah. And uh, since then, there's just been so much other stuff going on. I haven't gotten back to it. But, yeah. Know. And I know Mike, you've tried to be, tried to do the fine art thing, and and didn't have the greatest. Um, marrying of uh, the right gallery with your work, shall we say? Yeah, you should, speak, you should speak to that, not me. Yeah, well, I think one of the things that happened was um, there's been well a couple things are going on. Like you're doing your thing, you got your head down, you're working, like you said. But then the fine art world's gone through a couple different um, changes. One in Philly, in particular, is that uh, mo most of the people who own the galleries were older and most of them retired. And so a lot of the galleries that would show fine air work, there's not that many left. There's only really one downtown in Philly and Old City. And there used to be three or four. And now you go down to one. So like my gallery, uh, Roger LaPelle, Roger, he closed. Uh, several other ones closed. And, you know, Philly was not... Uh, Philly is a great city to live in as an artist because it's a great art community. Um, fairly affordable, especially compared to LA or New York, but it is not an art destination. So no. first Fridays when people would pour out and go around, they're mostly looking to just go out and, you know, blow the drink off, yeah. have a good time, get some beers. They walk around, looky loose, tired. So nobody's buying anything over. If you've got, if you could sell your paintings, for 50 bucks, great. I'm drunk. I'll, I got 50 bucks. I'll buy your Superman painting. Great. Uh, can you put Batman in there? You know? Um, so I found, actually, my last show I didn't do because I didn't want to do another 30 paintings and then have them parked in my garage, you know, basically. So mm -hmm. at the same time, I was doing a lot of the plein air stuff, which I like. And you know, got a little play in Planner Magazine and everything, um, but you came to realize that basically that thing was sort of consumed by the middle-aged housewife, and that kind of then like everybody's doing Planner, so it's like nobody's doing Planner. It kind of just got super saturated. So. Um, cause I was buying Pioneer magazine, which I still look at every once in a while, but I just, it seemed like a lot of things were really changing. Young people were not buying artwork. The people that were buying artwork that we were looking at and admiring were older, rich people and they're sort of aging out. So there's this couple different things going on at the same time. You've got people who were aging out of buying new people having younger people who want to buy art for their apartments and things are not into cowboys or plein air painting or what that's not their thing they want something they want something different so a lot of people are facing that all all over it was it was something i would hear from a lot of different artists that i know all over the country that it, that that things had been had been changing and 
that hit in 2008 took a lot of people out of the market. That that financial hit, a lot of money disappeared. So. Well, the fine art world is always the bellwether, the canary in the coal mine of what the fuck's going on with the economy. And before this hit, things slowed down. It's like it just somehow knows. I, I don't know what it is, but the every time there's an economic problem what will happen is that it wipes out the art world for for a couple of years and then slowly some people will hold on some people will crawl back some people are high enough to where they still sold some stuff during the the downturn because they had these rich collectors who had a really good relationship with or whatever and they kept going but it's always boomed contracted and then boomed a little less and then contracted then boomed a little less. And every time the art world gets back on its feet, there's some new crash that makes it tough. And the whole youth thing is, there's a big parallel with that in publishing. You know, magazines are dead. And, yeah, uh, they're super dead now. Yeah, <laughs> super dead, but the same thing. It took them like 50 years to die. And people will claim, well, they're still out there. I go to the supermarket and there's still a little magazine section selling lots of gun magazines. <laughs> but, you know, it's it's really pretty dead. And know? they're also super expensive. Yeah. Also, also magazines are $10 now. You know? Yeah, I mean, they're, it's crazy. You know, it's crazy. But I remember, you know, when I started thinking about going back to school myself, you know, I was very, uh, you know, your work was very inspirational to me when I was uh, starting uh, to go back and to get out and, and to plein air, uh, plein air paint. And, uh, I, for me, it still informs my, well, I don't get to do it as much in the last couple of years because trips keep me pretty busy. Um, I still, I still love to do it just, just for myself. Cause I think it keeps you really honest as a painter, you know? Um, but here I brought up a couple more, uh, more, paintings to really show like the I think like a real progress in what you were doing over time well the two examples you bring up um, that's a pretty old painting how old would you say that is 10 yeah, that's probably 10 years old that's the salt and sea and I was like the challenge to myself was how can I do a boat painting and not have a cliche so I did it pulled up onto a trailer park which I didn't do it. I found that visual there, took a photograph of it and did a painting, but not a typical pretty painting um, uh, of, of that kind of subject. But um, that's how I would always approach fine art. I don't want to do tugboats in the harbor the way everyone else does. And if you click onto the other one, that was a painting of a gas station that was probably as tight as the previous painting. And this is when I started trying to figure out abstraction. And how I figured it out was every time I tried to do an abstract painting, it was pure garbage if I did it from the ground up. So I got this idea one day, and this is one of the paintings right around then, maybe the second or third one. I'll just take an old realistic painting and start taking out the realism until I get down to the point where it's pretty abstract, but still feels like it's partially realistic too. So... Some people can look at this immediately see it was a gas station. Other people don't see it's a gas station at all. Some people can see there's a truck there. Some people can't. But that's sort of the idea when I was first doing this was to let it be, have one foot in both worlds. 
Right, right, right. Well, I, I, uh, I, I, I've been following, you know, and this is some I almost like in between this one. Yeah, that's more realistic with painted kind of painterly, and it's pretty small painting, so sometimes I would make those kind of loose, you know. But, uh, yeah, I would say it was probably a year before the last one you showed of the abstract. And what about this one? That's a little bit more re recent, maybe about three years ago, where I'm, again, just sort of, this is a typical painting I might do for a gallery that I'm in called Sue Greenwood. Right. Which Sue doesn't really sell plein air paintings. She sells fine art paintings that are can't have those same plein air subjects, but are most mostly studio and mostly invented or elaborated upon um, in some way. So, because that's a studio painting and it's much more designy and the colors manipulated and pushed, that interests her more than one that's realistic no, not no, that she doesn't have one or two hyper realistic artists there but most of the time it's stylized colorful reality now would you say that then and maybe you know it could also be a little bit different in la uh or california because I mean, the landscape's very beautiful so a lot of people want a nice painting of a nice landscape so would you say that, uh, say, something like this might be more appealing to that audience as opposed to that might be too abstract for them? Or uh, I can't tell you the definitive answer to that because everybody has different tastes and both those sold to collectors. So it worked for one and the other one worked for another. Um, it's not much of an answer, but... I've always just painted for what I wanted to do for myself, more or less. I mean, sometimes I will go, oh, that subject and how I did it seems to sort of sell. And I might kind of milk that, so to speak, for a little while. Um, not repeat it exactly, but explore it more. Right. That, that's about the only time an economic focus comes in for what I'm painting. But then you were also doing like your, your superhero series. So were you thinking then that this might be something that would appeal to some of the comic people and the fine art people? Or I was hoping, honestly, that this would get me into a really contemporary gallery. Now, Sue Greenwood is a contemporary gallery, but it's not quite as uh, purely modern. It's kind of keeps its feet in, in, in contemporary mixed with traditional. Uh, it's just... I know she just has really pretty good taste on what people like to put up on their walls in Laguna Beach. I mean, she just really knows it and, and centers on an artist that can sell it. And she never wanted to really carry the superheroes. She probably would have if I had pushed it and said, please do it. She might have tried. But um, I had this naive idea that I could sell this theme since it was Hollywood. And a lot of people in Hollywood collect uh, art. Right. And I have sold some superhero paintings to some Hollywood players, a few. Um, but I was never placed with these paintings in the right gallery long enough to really make it go for me as a subject. 
And so I haven't really painted it for quite a while. It's yeah, because you kind of had like different themes going. You could like you were doing the superhero stuff, then you were sort of doing. Yeah, I was trying to find. Yeah. I was trying to find me because, uh, you know, it was like, what is it that I want to paint, and, and what is it that I want to paint for a very long time? Because you kind of have to have a brand. Everyone tells you, but I finally realized my brand was just changing my whole life, which is the absolute worst way to have a career, because if you keep just following your muse and your artwork keeps evolving. You might be more interesting to other artists on a certain level, but collectors kind of in general um, want an art style and theme that's associated with your name that they can kind of count on. And um, that can do very, very, very well for them to just sort of be on repeat. And there's artists in Laguna who sell much better than me because they do that and they do a good job of it. But they, I, I never could stay satisfied with doing kind of the same thing. Uh, I might stay with it longer if I believed in it a lot and, and or I got some success with selling it. Um, but if it's not a raging success over the long haul, certain things get left behind. You know? Well, I, I know. At yeah. this point, the superheroes kind of are. And I would start it back up again in a heartbeat if I had a gallery, a contemporary art gallery in, say, L.A. that knew how to market them. Would you um, not just do it for yourself? Well, I've done it for myself. <laughs> and there's only so many paintings you can sell on Facebook. And, right. You know, it, it, it's like you need a good gallery behind you to get somewhere in this fine art world. And... I've had some pretty good galleries at different times and had them change their mind about me. Um, and, and it might just be because one show didn't do well and arguably it could have been their fault versus mine. Um, like, you know, finally having a shot at a certain gallery and they, they schedule it for the same, same weekend as Art Basel, you know, Art Basel. And it's like, well, how the fuck am I supposed to compete with that? Mm -hmm. But But it's like, I think a lot of times different artists get that perfect positioning and the perfect gallery and they take off fairly quickly. Uh, Maybe uh, when I started, things weren't quite, you know. Uh, Bill, uh, Paul asks, what has been your most fulfilling creative partnership of your career? Well, I would say it would have to be the Ren and Stimpy thing, except that then it goes the other way. It was the most fulfilling and then the most heartbreaking, mm. which I guess makes it the most interesting. Um, but despite my little gossipy stories about John and how, how we did the art, um, Jesus, when we finished those first Ren and Stimpy cartoons and they came back and we would have a viewing party for people and they would yeah. be dying on the fucking floor. Yeah, that had to be and great. And the Koreans had done a pretty good job with co copying our color keys and we had done quite a few of our own final paintings. Something like Space Madness. I don't know if any of you guys remember that cartoon. Oh, yeah. But we were so, fuck, how do we do it? We, we created a classic. Mm. This will be remembered forever. You know, our egos just exploded. But it, in fact, is kind of true. You know, we somehow got into that zeitgeist and the huge, giant mistake that John and his loyal minions, shall we say, uh, I shouldn't say that. They're just loyal artists, you know, 
thought they could like tell Nickelodeon to fuck off and just do it again. You know, I literally begged this guy to put his ego aside, go back to uh, apologize to, to Nickelodeon and be happy that they're letting us do these cartoons. And he could not do it. And he could not cooperate with them. He had to be this super difficult artist. And he was a very just self-destructive guy. But for a year or two, I'll, I'll never be, go through a thing like we went through when that thing took off. You know, going into a signing and having the entire room singing your songs. You know, it's like, mm -hmm. what the fuck? And so, yeah, anybody who's involved with a success that's that big and can say, I was part of creating that. I knew right then, I said, I don't think I'm ever getting anything better than this. You know, I tried to sell my own things and do did stuff like that. And I would warn people, this is so much bigger than you understand because you have to have the characters, the creativity, the quality, the time in history that mm. it fits, you know, uh, the backing. You, every single thing for a hit TV show has to fall into place mm. and that you can think of. And you had, another big thing is patience. I mean, the first few Seinfeld episodes were all over the place. Who'd have thought that would be a hit show? Yeah. And then they found the rhythm. And, 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 if some, and if the executive hadn't had the faith that they would, we'd, they'd never have that mega forever. Uh, what do they call those things that are forever gold or whatever? Evergreen. Yeah, evergreen. Yeah. They got their evergreen show, like Friends or whatever. Not that I got by Friends was so amazing. But. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean that that I think that that's also harder now because there's way more stuff. I mean, if you go back to when Ren and Stimpy came out, it was kind of uh, a desert in a way with their entertainment, and now there's so much entertainment. That's exactly right. That was that point in time I was talking about, mm -hmm. and the business itself had been sidelined by. Um, trying to please worried mothers who wanted children's entertainment to be educational and safe. Mm. And it had, safe, it, it had constipated itself by being so fucking safe. So when something like The Simpsons came along, it fucking exploded. People were dying for it. Right. And, and when our show came along about that same time, they were dying for something like that too. Everybody describes it as being like finding it accidentally and just can't even fucking believe what they're watching on a kid's cartoon channel. They just can't. I can't believe it. It changed my life because they were in a void, a entertainment void where it was just nothing but garbage. Well, I mean, something boring, even as simple. Well, fairly well done, boring stuff. You know? Yeah. I mean, something as simple as, I mean, take, people take it for granted now, but you could never do a, like a booger joke or a fart joke. That was just like, no, that was like the seven deadly sins you couldn't have on the air, you know? That's because the women that were in charge of this thing hadn't come up in that business, really. They didn't, they didn't have a list of things you couldn't do. I mm. mean, they would say that once in a while, but they were more concerned about the relationship not being, um, well, this is a present day term, but not being a toxic relationship. Show them love each other more. Then you can do all your nasty stuff and then show them end up loving each other. And I don't think John loved that. And a lot of times he was kind of parodying this love and relationship, like in this extreme way. So you could take it both ways. It's a satire of love or it's love. Most people took it as love. And if it didn't have that element, 
those cartoons would have never worked. And that was the pressure from Nickelodeon, the shit that John complained about. And and it was like, when he got to do Ren and Stimpy later at Spike TV, at the, the iteration of that, the adult cartoon party, yeah. that nobody remembers now because it was so awful, he threw all that away. Um, I don't need that love crap, you know? I'll just do it gross, yeah. you know? And angry and inside jokey. Um, anyway, as you see, I'm still passionate about it. <laughs> so now, so now you've been uh, the last. Was it? Did you do two seasons in one year of Harley Quinn? So you've been the art director uh, on Harley Quinn. That's now was the art director. Yeah. Was the art director? No, you did two two years of two seasons of it, right? Two seasons that we did in about a year, um, maybe a little bit more. Um, in fact, yeah, a little bit more. For the, the crew that was left over i was let go before it was done um but that's how they do it at warner brothers as soon as they can lay you off they do so um art director is a little bit of a loosey-goosey term in that world at warner brothers i'm not complaining i'm just being like i knew what i was doing when I, I knew what the job was when i came in but um a lot of times an art director will have a free hand and a lot to say about the look and feeling of a cartoon. Uh, that is not the case at Warner Brothers. Um, they do try to hire, and I was hired because the, the person who hired me loved my work. And it is reflected in the show, you should agree. But um, you're, you're part of a system that works with checks and balances. And, you, and when I came into that job, that's exactly what I did. I said, okay. There's no time to develop a style. We already have a crew hired. Um, how do I get this thing looking different and original? And I just told myself, I can't. I, I can't change who I've got. These are good artists, but these are their strengths. And so I have to play to them. So the show is, for instance, more realistic architecturally than I would have done it if I had time to stylize it. Didn't. Mm. But the color is me, pretty much. But I also designed it to um, be easy for Korea to do. And in fact, ironically, I kind of designed my way out of my job a little earlier than I might have. <laughs> because right. I designed it so they could take my material that I created and clone it. Because I knew that's what they would do anyway. Mm -hmm. And so they got really good at it. And at a certain point, we really didn't need to color key an episode for them. They're, they're good artists, you know. As long as they know what the template is, they can just copy it. So, the last few episodes, I really had nothing to do with. Um, so, so what was your what was your uh, job on that? How was that different than say when you were on Ren and Stimpy? I had much more, uh, despite John being my my uh, art director, so to speak. Um, I had a lot more to say about the look of it. I think. Um, and, but more of that is almost like the drawing style and working with John for years and other things and everything else. We had all were together because we were simpatico in the world of drawing that we wanted to draw. We wanted to, we wanted our cartoon. There was nobody, none of us there was there like, oh, I didn't want to just run and Stimpy thing. Oh, okay, I guess I'll do that. No, it was like we were all there because, for the most part, because we wanted to do something like that. It was classic Warner Brothers, classic Anna Rivera modernize a little for the current day really good drawing chuck jones drawing like 
the best of Chuck Jones in the 40s or early 50s, not the Chuck Jones drawing in the 60s and 70s. You know, it was like a really kind of specific zeitgeist of style that we were going for, pop trumpet, that kind of thing. And we all just loved it. And that's how we got to be friends and knew each other way back in the early days. Whereas um, when I was hired, the guy who hired me were longtime friends over at Warner Brothers. He, he knew my fine art painting. And in fact, if he had time, he wanted prior lessons for me to teach him. Uh, so he loved my use of color and just said, bring that knowledge in with this stuff, you know, with, with what we've got going already and, and add your color touch to it. Now, you also are doing, I mean, a lot of the stuff now is done digital or tradigital or whatever. And mm -hmm. and that's also a different than what you were doing on Ren and Stimpy. Well, I'm still a bit of an anachronism, um, still working in the old school ways, uh, even though I'm in Photoshop, because I'm doing all my textures by hand. So, and I just scan it in. And then the Photoshop painting comes in. But really, the textures are so... This, this is the whole style trick that I did with it. I did these kind of forgiving lit texture pieces that you could just throw over a whole scene. And if you wanted, you could adjust, you could make it the sky and you could just adjust it to blue. If you want mm. to make it the building, you can adjust it to whatever, mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera. Sometimes you'd have to use two textures, but generally you could use one, just adjusting it throughout. And then all you have to do is kind of balance value and lighting. You don't have to do any painting. We would have to do a little bit here and there, but I'm not very good at Photoshop painting. I look like one of those horrible beginning Photoshop artists where everything looks all mushy, you know, because I really don't know how to paint well with it. So I found this trick style that no one had ever quite done. And this was playing to my limitations. But I also knew if I'm really limited in what I do, that'll be really, really simple for Korea to do. They can give it to beginners. And that's the dream of any big studio that's cranking out work and doesn't want to pay artists, uh, the, the best artists, the top rate. So I came up with a style where they didn't have to be the best artists. And um, I didn't even know if Warners had noticed that, but I mean, they, they, they must have because they kind of took advantage of it at the end. And, I don't blame them. That's just what they do. You know, I, I, I just, I figured out a style. It was easy for Korea to do. The show looks good. Um, well, consistency is a big, is a big deal. I mean, on, on shows, because I mean, a lot of people who are, you know, fans of animation don't really know the, the bolt, nuts and bolts like we do, but uh, you can, on any show, you can tell when you've got the better, artists or the better background painters even from scene to scene from show to show if you got 30 shows you go like these four shows were got the a people on it and these four or five shows got the mm, the the not as good people on it um <laughs> and you don't notice that at the beginning but later on you can see that and and, and so you're right if you could come up with a way of making the c people closer to the a people you know, with a simple technique. The funny thing is, is that how you use their best people at a place like Warner Brothers, and it is to go more with realism because most most of these guys can architecturally render fairly well. And there's also their, their SketchUp, and we're working from SketchUp. Um, the, the, the mantra from the guy who hired me, Peter Girardi, 
was to, if this shit looks like SketchUp, I'll fucking puke. Or, you know, I don't know if he's, those are the exact words, but do not let me be able to see, he didn't say it mean, but he, he made his point clear. I don't want to know that was a SketchUp drawing. Mm -hmm. I don't want to know that. And so we just would use SketchUp as a building block so the board artists could still use it for staging and uh, drew over the top. Mm -hmm. So it was kind of like a whole lot of tracing with stylized, put it in, putting it in, but it still let an air of realism. So realistic artists could do this. And there was a lot of heavy lift. You know, there's a lot of kind of like, I would say overdrawing in the drawing. Again, stylized versions of realism are harder to do yeah than kind of an architectural drawing shall we say that's mm -hmm. stylized a little bit and so that's kind of what we did because i knew that that drawing would be the most successful by the artist layout artists that they had and that we would be able to do pretty realistic good-looking show pretty quickly and so that's that's how we did it. It was a really pragmatic choice. Were you doing keys yourself? Um, we did a lot of finals. Yeah. Basically, I, I really didn't do keys because I could do a final at, at the same speed as as a as a as a key. But again, this the way to do this thing is so easy that you know, other than the mileage of the drawing being kind of complicated sometimes, um, you would let that line carry the simple coloring process that was simply laid down on it, but sophisticatedly adjusted. But that adjustment didn't take that long. Right. That that's kind of an abstract statement, but. Well, I remember when I was working on uh, Batman beyond, they would only do, you know, we would, we would draw many of the key backgrounds and paint some of the key backgrounds and do a certain amount of color keys. But then the rest of them were done, you know, they would send that and the rest of them would be done overseas. And then I guess they'd send them back to, to check. Um, so, but, you know, that was a lot of steps. You know, you've got to take the board, got to make the background got a you know you do first we'll do a line drawing then you do a grade a, a, a tonal drawing then somebody would key that and then somebody would paint that so you had all these very specific steps so it seems I, like i eliminated that yeah um, for a while there was talk about maybe doing um color scripts but i didn't have time to do color scripts it was like we were late from day one and we had a brutal schedule However, we did, we often did as many as 40 finished backgrounds per show. Wow. Because, and I had a tiny crew, often just had two painters, sometimes one. I think one time we had three painters with me for a while. So I couldn't really art direct as much as I was just the painter leading and just cranking out paintings. Um, so Korea was given a lot of stuff. And the hilarious thing being that they would still ask for more. <laughs> but, you know... <laughs> That's how the studios work, but um, yeah, I, I don't think they've had a recent show with this much material presented to Korea as we did. And that was also, again, at the end, they realized once I got this sort of formula down that oh, maybe they can do most of it. You know, maybe we don't need to give them this much coverage. Mm -hmm. And so, because they can just look back at what we've done, and they have all his, all Bill's color. Mm -hmm. uh, 
all my texture paintings that would turn that would you know used for the line drawing they could just reuse them right right so now when you important. were when you were working on the story core stuff and you were doing the uh, the backgrounds uh did you go through uh the the various steps or did you keep that pretty compressed as well well that's the thing about me that i've always tried to work on things where i could kind of just do it and that's how it was with story core i had a storyboard and i would just do a layout and a painting kind of in one shot um because i had pretty much total freedom the the director and the producer believed in me the Roush brothers and i was kind of the old hand actually who and i would sometimes pressure them to put more into the work on their end which was really not my place but i did it anyway <laughs> and when they would do it they, the cartoons would just be all the better but yeah i just kind of worked straight ahead um the guy that showed me that could be done really was bob camp on Brent stimpy because he would storyboard his cartoons by doing full-size layouts straight ahead because he knew it boarded so many shows he knew he could just do it so you're and just sort of saving you're saving time basically yeah i mean you're skipping steps and approval processes because you know how to do the show and you've got a management system that has enough faith in you that they realize that and they just let you do that mm -hmm. and so i don't even think that was a conscious thing on harley it just sort of worked out that way you know uh, we just ran out of time to do things like go through an approval process with with a color script for instance we just didn't right. have the time when i there used to be meetings once a week to get all the, the, the with the department heads with uh the network executives they eventually as soon as i started they did those for a few weeks and that was the end of it they just everybody got too busy we just started just doing stuff and i'm sure they would have loved to ha have change the stuff more and had more uh, impact on the show and then they did but it was more often it seemed to be more look at color the color schemes on characters was the biggest concern of network and the model sheets so the backgrounds literally drifted into the background and we just had to we just had to kind of get them done yeah. and every now and then i would just fail i would just be like oh you went straight ahead and did this this crazy world of this carnival that I wanted to be like this crazy drug dream, you didn't get it or you didn't get it in a way I would want it. And so we would have to redo it. But that didn't happen too often. Most of it just went through. Now, on, on uh, in, in the middle or of all this uh, stuff, you were also working for mad for a long time, which I know was a big dream of, of, of you uh, and, and, and many people of, of, of our generation uh, with the Mad Magazine. So you did Monroe and, and how long did you do Monroe for? 10 years. 10 years. And did you do, you also worked for Crack, right? I did. Now, when you were doing the Crack stuff, were you doing like the movie adaptions and things like that? Or were you doing? Yeah. yeah. No, I am. Um... I did the back covers every issue for many, many, many issues too. It was a weird, dumb idea where it was like Sylvester Peace Smythe, who is their Alfred E. Newman, um, would have to be like Bill Cosby 
he would be a celebrity caricature, so I would have to mix their two features together. It, was, it wasn't like Mad, where it would just be like a different haircut on, on Moonlit. You know, mm -hmm. uh, it was more of this weird morphing of the two. And um, I did that for a long time. And usually every issue, I would do a movie parody or something, um, or a TV parody. I tried to use that as a fulcrum to um, get a job at Mad. Like I'm over at Cracked. You know, um, how about I come over here? And they would say, well, why don't you quit craft and maybe one day we'll hire you. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, uh, economically, I'm kind of a, one of the back. John Severin is the back one of the magazine, but I'm kind of number two, uh, just, just for the back cover and the story every issue, you know? So that's a big chunk of change for me to give up. And plus it was creatively fun. Yeah. to do humor satire you know it was doing the the low rent version of mad which is what i really wanted to do so i didn't go to work to mad till after i had not been working at crack because of having a falling out with the with the editorial at crack and then he soon had a falling out with crack itself and was gone too but um yeah i went over to marvel and did did what the for a little while Right. And that was yeah. really fun because I got to be actually working at Marvel and I was writing and drawing stories for them. But that was, a, of course, a wonderful thing. So it only lasted a short time. Like every comic thing I've ever worked on, it was I had something to say about it. They always would implode, change editors, whatever it would be. But the reason I got away with doing what I did on What The was that no, no editor wanted it. It was kind of an orphan book that got passed around for a while until I got an editor um, named Renee Winterstatter, Winterstatter who it was Mike, uh, Go, Mike, Michael Golden's um, uh, agent now, I guess you'd call yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. And um, she was very conservative. So all of a sudden, all my edgy jokes were out. So then I was out. And I was actually, of all things, I was art directing the, the Space Jam movie. I did so many weird things and would have this trajectory for a little while and then not, it wouldn't lead to a career in that or whatever. And one of them was that's almost an art director on animated movies, but that was the one and only animated movie I did. And that was off the strength of Ren and Stimpy. But at Space Jam, they mad called me and said, we remember your visit and we're auditioning artists to do this new strip called Monroe. And our writer of the script doesn't know how to stage writing for comics. Would you stage his writing and draw it? But that, that was, I found out about that a little bit later. First, I did a, uh, I did a portfolio piece for, this is too much information, but I had done a little bit of work for Joe Orlando to try to get in. He, he, he asked me to come in and then he didn't like what I did as my sample. I did what they asked me to do. Um, some Bill Clinton thing. And he didn't like that work. And so I was sort of dead in the water for a while. But then they called me back when there was a new art director there and auditioned me for this strip and I got it. And I was packaging the whole strip. They didn't know how to do, they told me this, Matt, we don't know how to do a real time cartoon strip. And our writer doesn't quite know how to stage it. So you, as I said, you need to stage it. So I would kind of rewrite these stories and restage them for this real-time comic strip. And it immediately became their, their most popular feature for a very long time. 
And um, I, I ended up getting into conflict with them because um, they got a new art director and I, who I didn't get along with, who tried to art direct me really heavy after I'd been given freedom for five years on a successful strip. And editorial wasn't concerned with my problems. They just said, do what the art director tells you to do. Uh, Nick Meglin had retired at that point, and I found out he was my champion. He was the guy who was always saying, let Bill do what he wants to do. And so uh, that ended. And so eventually I, I did. Mad paid so well. I mean, they just paid really well. I, so I, I just kind of poured the strip out. That's a politically incorrect. I became a, a working man. Uh, uh, pardon me for using that term, but um, that non-woke term. Uh, but uh, I just did the strip for money for a long time, and it showed. And they knew it, too. And they kept threatening me. Like, you better put your love back into it. And I would just say, I don't have the love for it. The writer's okay with it. You need to be okay with it. So eventually, we just had a parting of the ways, and that was the end of that. And now there is no more mad. And now there is no more mad. So. Which is, which is you, know, uh, I, uh, you know, I love that so much as a – as a kid, and one of the things I, I think I mourn the most, in a way, is that there just are not venues like that anymore for people who want to go to do that kind of cartooning. Where do you go today to do that kind of cartooning? I mean, maybe, you know, maybe the world just doesn't want that kind of work, you know? Um, you have to do what, I mean, you know Richard Sparks' work? No. He's on Facebook and he puts up new cartoons, sometimes two or three cartoons every day. And he is, he, um, he's actually really good, really funny. Um, and his stuff would be mad oriented, I would say. He would have fit in with Matt um, if they were a little more adult. Because, you know, he does a lot of dick jokes and stuff. But um, he just, I guess once he gets a whole bunch of these drawings that he puts up every day he gets a small publisher to print them into a book and they try to get some distribution and they try to sell them and he makes a little bit of money um he probably does lots of i don't know him or know him well or what he's doing i've never talked to him but um i you kind of have to build your own little following and we've all done that one time or another i know brett's done a lot of his personal sketchbooks as a as a, another source of income and a way to to do capitalize on doing sketches for conventions or just what you like to sketch or whatever. Um, so you kind of have to be your own little publisher or find someone who will print that for you and give you a decent cut of it or whatever. There's no firm ground on going to a major publisher and making a living. Um, about the last place to go now is the New Yorker, if you're talking about a humorous illustrator. And they've got the top guys to pick from. So that's a market that's tough to pick. Right, right. So so um, now that you're off Harley, at least temporarily or maybe forever, what's your next? Uh, are you going back in to do a lot more of your personal painting now? Well, I always never stopped painting. You know, when I was working on Harley, I was painting on the weekends. Um, uh, and I'm painting now. And, um, but I, I think I, I might have mentioned earlier, I am going to do uh, this thing with Ashley Wood, my, my, my happy comics 
right re reprint and repackage and i'm starting to work on new material for that and then um it's kind of up to me on when i get it done and um i have a as donald trump would say i have a beautiful pitch for Warner <laughs> brothers very beautiful um i can't say anything about it other than to you know just just to tell you what i'm doing or what i was doing I spent no please bill time. tell us your secrets uh well you know it's i can tell you it's with the classic hanover bear character and it's taking it and making it how i would do something which of course is adult themed and we're finally at that point in time for 30 years i've been telling people we could do and tried and almost was paid and almost had it happen with with hanover bear in the past uh to do to do these characters in an adult format and more recently, yeah, there's a, there's the first issue. And more recently, why, 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 Bill? Why, why are you hurting my childhood? Can you, can you pop why, that, why? Mike? Yeah. Huh? Can you blow that up, Mike? <laughs> so this is what you did with Ashley, right? The first time? Yeah. Yeah. And that's ironic, obviously. <laughs> I mean, really? It's happy. It's happy being roasted alive is not a very happy thing to happen to you. But in fact, if you're the wolf and you're making a tasty dinner, it could be the happiest moment of your week. <laughs> so, yeah, I like to play. I've always liked to play around with those conceits of funny animal comics where um, it's impossible that these characters would be in conflict or be, be friends or anything, and you just start pointing out. Let's add some reality to this and see where it gets us, you know. Right. So, yeah, it's basically the bad wolf eating Huey and Dewey. And he's sitting on top of one of them who's still alive, who's screaming for his life as his brother is being burned alive and then eaten. Yeah, that's me. That's why I have <laughs> no, a very limited selection of publishers. <laughs> <laughs> Do you um, – now – you know, could you have such? I mean, this could not be, in some ways, more opposite than some of the paintings that you're doing, especially the more abstract paintings that you're doing now. So you're sort of feeding these two different appetites. When you, I take it, you're not showing this to the people in the galleries, or do they look at it and go, "Yeah, this is cool," but uh, no, I don't bother. To I don't bother to show them that. This would this would probably offend them. You know, I, I know better than that. This is my underground comic, you know? So, and when you're not distributed, you are literally underground, uh, more underground than underground. Underground comics were distributed. Right. Yeah, you know, This is not showing up in head shops. Yeah. I don't think there's head shops anymore, is there? Uh, well, you know, actually, I you think... You icons in San Francisco or something? I think head shops have become hookah bars. You know, because there was a little, there was a little place not too far from me that sold like the new versions of bongs and stuff. I had a friend that went in there and I went in with her and she was, because she was looking for, for some stuff. And it was, it took me back to Ann Arbor in the seventies where there were a lot of those 
places, you know, right on Main Street, you know, right there in the middle. Of, in fact, there was one place called Middle Earth, I believe. And they had, you know, all kinds of like bongs and, you know, all kinds of paraphernalia and black light posters and, you know, all the, the hippie stuff. And in fact, I remember, you'll find this funny, um, before we moved to Ann Arbor from uh, Detroit, we would go up and visit on the weekends. And so we would walk around, and I remember we went to this little store, and they had a little rack of comics. Oh, and I must have been, I don't know if I was maybe 10 or 11. So I went over, and I think there was like, I think I remember it was like Wonder, Warthog, the Fabulous Furry Freak Brothers, and some Robert Crumb stuff. So I go like, oh, these are look pretty, these look like pretty awesome. And I go up to take them to my parents. Can we buy these? And they're like, no, you cannot buy these. Put those comics back. So well, the, kid, the the head shops wouldn't sell them to me until I would ask my mother to come in and tell them it was okay. She was pretty liberal. <laughs> she also really didn't even look at them. She was just like, whatever, it's a comic book. Yeah. I think if she looked at them, she might have had an objection. I'm not sure. But they, both my parents, for their weird, we can't get into stories about them, but they, they both had this kind of liberal leaning side when it came to art. That that they understood, you could sort of go off the deep end with. Right. Lots so do of you, other things were quite conservative. So do you find? Do you find that there's anything that you take from? Uh, I mean, I say you could take the color from your painting and put it into your cartooning, but do you take anything from your cartooning and put it into your painting? I think all art disciplines that the a singular artist does can inform the other disciplines they work in one way or another, um, you know, I don't know if anybody else has any thoughts on that, but it's, it's, um, I think each one of the things I do, you can go, Oh, well, like that picture of the cover, um, the, the, it looks a little washed out, but the, the same thing's going on there. It has that sort of monochromatic background, but then where I want you to look at the burning duck, he's colored orange and it's complementary colors. You know, it's, it's, it's still the same thing. It's just a pen and ink drawing. Right. So it's much, it's much more of a colored in uh, painted pen and ink drawing than a right. quote unquote painting. But it wouldn't be that hard to lose that, that, that ink line and turn that into a painting. Just to, you have to do a little bit more detailing. Right. I remember when I went back to, you know, I started back uh, at, at school. Uh, I remember a couple of the teacher was one teacher in particular, you know, nice, nice guy and everything. And he said he didn't know whether my my years of working in comics would be able to help my painting. But I disagreed with him because I said, you know, drawing is drawing years of drawing is going to help you no matter what. I mean, just being able to make a line with confidence is something that you're going to apply to any, whether you're painting a tree or a person or a charbroiled well, duck, you know? If you want to get philosophical about the whole arc of your life as an artist uh, and developing your quote unquote style and finding yourself and what you're going to do. Uh, when my mother passed away uh, last year, I found um, that she had kept a, a whole bunch of my childhood paintings that um, I literally had not seen since I painted them when I was five. And what's funny is that they're abstract and that I had been trying, struggling for 10 years to figure out how to do abstract well. And I was doing abstract brilliantly at age five. 
I, I was a better artist then than I ever became on, in a certain funny, creative way. Not funny, but a certain odd, creative way that's hard to describe. But then, at, at age, already at age six or seven, I wanted to draw more realistically. And that quest to draw more realistically made me do 10 years of pure fucking garbage. The drawings were just terrible. And they were the same themes and there was a lot of conflict in my life which i won't go into but so i love the war themes so it was like world war ii nazis fighting americans bombers and explosions and horrible death again and again and again for years and then finally the only when i finally changed drawing would have been in my like 12 or 13 when i started getting into hot rods so it became hot rods and all these different interests of mine and finally comics from 14 or 15 and for years all that work was terrible just terrible and then you would get you would go to school and you would get better at it and then ultimately when i wanted to do the abstract art it was so hard to shed all that good drawing i had learned it got in the way but yet oddly it didn't because there was, I, I figured out, well, how can I use some elements of this realism that I can do and, and design, which I'm pretty good at composition and things, how can I put this in abstraction and still have it be abstraction? So there would be a lot of artists who would look at my abstract work and say, it's not abstraction because I can see an element of a landscape here. Mm -hmm. Abstraction is supposed to just be pure marks and there's no, Anything well, some abstraction, not all abstraction is that way. Yeah, but it's yeah. an arguable thing. And I, I happen to think that I can do a book called Abstract, even though you can tell it's a parking lot, you know, but who's going to stop me? Who cares? You know, uh, but there's plenty of people who, who have said over the years, this isn't abstract, you know, as to like pick a fight or whatever, or just that's their, their belief and they're, they're entitled to it. So if I did a book called Abstract, I probably should have called it Elements of Abstraction. <laughs> <laughs> well, I found that, that, that going through art school, you would get a lot of those arguments you would have in art school. But then once you are actually out of art school, people are, are too busy working to actually worry about that until they are going to be in a, I don't know, you're going to be in a magazine, you're going to do a... You're going to do a book. A lot of it is what I call like being an art lawyer. So you you go to art, you go and you get your MFA so that you learn how to basically be like a a prosecutor for your version of art, and you're going to convince people with your words even more than your than your art. It's mostly about you trying to convince people with if they buy your argument, then they buy the art. If they don't buy the, you know, because it's a lot of the stuff is non, non mimetic. It's not, you're not trying to, you know, it's easy for someone to look at a, at a Rockwell painting or Wyeth painting and go, oh, that's good. It looks like the person or the plant or the, you know, what's easily understandable. Then you start diverging further and further and further. You started getting into the color fields and all the you know all the post 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 modernism, then it's really more about a, a lot of theory. So there's all this theory that comes in to convince the person to try to inform the the viewer of what the art is because they're not going to get it on their own without the intellectual side of it being presented. 
they might just look at it and go, oh, it's a box on the floor. That's trash. They would throw it away, right? They're not gonna. They're not gonna get it. Get into it. So, um, I that that was my experience in art schools. That uh, you know, we'd have these different. You would have these different camps. You still have the people arguing about the use of photography. Don't use photos. Photos are bad. People been using photos forever. You know, don't use black. Don't use black. Don't never use black. Man, other I've heard that before. <laughs> oh. uh, then you have other people. Uh, in fact, one of the guys you, I know you like and was one of my teachers was Alex Konevsky. And at that time, I had been using a um, limited palette. And I was actually doing stuff like, you know, painting with uh, enamel on cardboard and doing all this different stuff. And so I was sort of going to try to do some of that in his class. And he's like, I don't believe in using a limited palette. I believe you just use, you know, you just use every color. Now, later on that afternoon, I could go have a class with somebody else would go, never <coughs> use black. So you would get all these conflicting opinions from the different teachers, you know? So, um, well, it must have been vexing for you with Alex because, um, and Alex is a little, little bit of a friend of mine, um, but, um, we, we did a we did a a speech together once. I was sort of the bad guy. He was the good guy, and um, dude, yeah, that's what he wanted. Uh, so we did a fake a fake routine like that, but talking about abstract art. Um, but he, when you look at his work, my first impression of it was I can't speak for you. Was he seemed to kind of have sort of a limited palette, <laughs> you know. He, he was very fond of those cool, cool blues and, and dull pinks. And I call those like TV colors. Those are like the colors you see on your, you, you see, you, you see that from photography, not from nature almost in a way. Um, yeah. And he would, and then he would mix abstraction with quite realistic imagery, but kind of mush them around together. So sometimes quite beautifully. Uh, I'm a big fan. Um, I actually recently just bought one of his paintings. Finally, uh, I haven't gotten it yet, but um, I, I've had my favorite painters, and I've taken classes from them, and, and had them say things like that. But for the most part, you know, I think when you're teaching, it, it's kind of funny what you might say to one person, and it won't necessarily be the experience of another. I took his class that same week that we did that thing together. And I do that every once in a while. I, you know, even though I teach and I'm pretty good at what I do, I still take another artist to get a different perspective who I right. really like and see if there's something I can steal from them or whatever, learn from them. Mm -hmm. um, I, I felt like Alex kind of taught me some things, but I, I, I sort of struggled in his class to make him happy. I don't think I really did. Um, but I didn't get the, one of those experiences where he says, I don't like it if you do this. Um, he, he was a little blunt with me. You know, he, he would just say things like, you can't be happy with that. Or, well, <laughs> that choice didn't work out for you, did it? <laughs> I, th I think make, it's it's you, it's, you can it's make also a better choice than that. I think right. You know? I also think it's interesting because going to school later, 
uh, also, you know, learning cartooning, it's kind of like you learned it on your own. And, you, you know, I never had anybody uh, who, you know, like Villagran or Williamson or, you know, I never had anybody say, oh, you never, you, you don't ever crosshatch or you don't ever, you know, like painters will be very, you can be very dogmatic. I think more dogmatic in a way than, than cartoonists in my experiences. They won't say like, never use Zipatone, you know, never use tone board. Never use a pen, never use a brush, but you will get painters who will be very much no that 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 is poison, you know. Well, you the, the way I've always approached it for the most part, I may have been a little bit more headstrong when I was young, but usually when I would take a class, I would take it because I liked the painter and wanted to learn exactly how they painted. Mm -hmm. So I would have already come into the class probably approaching it the way Alex would do it himself to some level of degree. I wouldn't walk in with like a, a kind of a different approach. Right. You know, and I would just be whatever he described in his opening statement of here's what we're going to do. I would immediately try to follow that as close as possible. And it would be, um, it's always amazing to me. It happens to me. It happens to every class I've taken. There's two or three students who come there. and want to paint how they paint exactly how they paint. And you're like, well, what are you learning? By repeating what you always do but he blew my mind with how patient he was about that because a lot of these paint paintings would have older people kind of set in their ways of what they would do and they didn't want to change for him they didn't want to change one iota and they would basically state it to his face in one way or another and then he would just kind of talk at them for a while and bring them back around uh, trying it his way again and again and sometimes they kind of did eventually but he was just this master at making you do it his way you know and for me i mean it wasn't always successful for all the students because you can't become that painter in three days it just oh no done. no no but maybe you can pick up a few little things but but um you can't even digest to it do terrible paintings because you're working this his approach at least you're trying to and you're you're sort of throwing out what you do but then you're getting this conflict of like well i want to paint it like what i do and i know if i paint it like what i do i can make him happy but then that doesn't make him happy because you're not you know blah 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 so usually every painting class in one way or another for the student is a disaster you know it's it's don't go there expecting a good painting don't go there trying to do what you always do just try to learn a few things and be happy with that yeah and i also think that you have to uh digest things it has to go through you and then whatever how whatever's going to be however it's going to work will eventually come out but the of course the only way that happens is if you do enough paintings to sort of process to keep processing that thought pattern you know because you're right you go i'm going to go take a class with any major figurative painter right um and you're just you're not going to be able to absorb all that. You can get some you can get some pieces, you know. And I just know this from going through art schools. Like I had, like with Scott Noel. I mean, I had him for seven years between the MF the undergrad and the and the uh, and the MFA. So you know, in the beginning, you're taking little bits, and then eventually you kind of get what that what his thing is about, and then eventually you keep or retain 
whatever you find of value from your teacher and then whatever's going to be you, which may conflict greatly at times with what your teachers was was all about. That's just the way it is. It, but it's it's a it's a it's a process. And you know, sometimes it's a very uh, uncomfortable and painful process. Uh, I think as frustrating. I found painting can be much more frustrating than cartooning. Yeah, and frustrating for the teacher too if you're not trying to do what they're trying to teach and things like works i think it's easier in a long-term class like you did seven years with the same guy you're committed to learning his way i mean it's gonna rub off on you one way or another mm -hmm. but when you got to do it in three days and you got to turn your wheel that hard most people have a hard time with it. i teach composition with color and uh through I don't do the overview of being a great artist from A to Z. It can't be done in three days. I just teach basically how to do a little color rough and have it designed correctly. That's it. And there's two or three people who get it and do astonishingly better work than you did. And there's a bunch of people who kind of go in the middle of that. And there's two or three people who don't. And then there's one person who usually gets mad at me and quits the class. <laughs> I'm sorry, I, Bill. I hope your feelings were hurt. I kind of make them do it. I'm not quite as. I'm a little more dogmatic and, and consistent and constant. You know, Alex spent a lot of time with people as, as an example and had a big class. So he's not coming around to you as often. I'm doing. I have a smaller class and we're doing smaller paintings. So I'm kind of constantly coming around working on their work. And. Um, so you kind of have to do it with my approach. And so um, some people don't want to and they quit the class. That's not why I signed up. I just thought it'd be cool to hang out with these people and I like your paintings, but I don't want to just do this. <laughs> have you ever I, taught a cartoon? Why can't I do a full-size painting? Well, sorry, you got to do it two or three by two by three inches. And when you can do one of those well, then you can do a bigger painting. Mm -hmm. And have very few of the classmates get to do that bigger painting on the third day. Have you ever taught cartooning? No. No. So you've taught people on the job, like you said, you were you were teaching guys like Scott Wills and stuff, but you've never actually tried to teach cartooning separate. No, um, I don't think that. I think my cartooning style is pretty idiosyncratic, even though it has a certain classic feel to it. I. I guess I could do it, um, but it just it just doesn't have any appeal to me, and I, I I'm I'm stumped to explain to you why. And and I clearly I'm not a guy who's at a loss for words ever. <laughs> but in this case, um, yeah, I don't know why. Maybe just nobody asked me to. So where is your uh, if people are in California and uh, they want to go to your your gallery? You're in Sue Greenwood Gallery. Sue Greenwood is in Laguna Beach. Uh, I'm at another gallery in Los Gatos called the Whitney Fine Art Gallery, or the Whitney Modern, I'm sorry. Okay. And then I'm in a gallery in Cambria called The Vault. And those are the three I'm at. And um, I really, I was going to take this time after Harley to try to really do some researching and perhaps some travel 
to try to find another gallery. I'd like to be in like New Mexico or someplace like that that still has a bit of a market or figure out like where the town is where art is still booming. But of course, this the virus thing has destroyed everything. Everything's back to square one and obviously travels out of the picture. But yeah, I'm kind of looking to go find one more gallery um, to, to just be in a different spot in a different state. But then I'm not, but then I'll just go back and I'll do some, like for instance, I'm doing a little bit of freelance for Warner Brothers now for presentation stuff for them. Right. You have to turn your light on, Bill. You're fading. You're fading away. You're slipping into darkness. You're you're slipping. <laughs> Mike, we should wrap. Yeah, being on the California coast and not working with artificial lighting to start with. <laughs> no, there you window. go. Yeah. So I uh, see somebody wanted to wants uh, to hear from Bill and and Mr. I mean uh, from Jamar and Mr. Blevins. Um, <laughs> if it's good. No, you know what, Mike and uh, Bill has just been riffing. This is good stuff. I'm, I'm a fan, just like everybody. Else. <laughs> and who are you writing letters to? <laughs> oh, that's not me. I think that's. Uh, uh, well, I'm, I've been. Uh, right. Yeah, there's some sort of popping. I think it might be Brett's computer or something like that. I'm not sure. Oh, I thought. Well, I'm on my phone. Maybe it's my phone. I don't know. Oh yeah, there's like a pop, like some popping going on. Um, Doesn't that sound just like keyboard strokes, though? Yeah, it sounds just like somebody's like furiously typing. I'm glad I brought it up because I would have been saying later, God, that Jamar, he was typing the whole time. What a what a what a jerk! <laughs> does, it, does it go away? Does it go away? My whole life, it's been one of my biggest foibles is making these assumptions. Oh, you thought that I was carrying those with me forever, and they didn't exist. Bill, you thought? Yeah, I think I think I think it's vibrating, Brad. I think that's your if you. Yeah, when you mute it, it goes off. Yeah, it's off now. Yeah. It's perfect. But if you... Um, him, but he's not talking to us, so... Right. But you can still talk. You I, know, I don't talk. really care. You can have well, it on. Yeah, but I, I think I, I know what it is, I'm cool. Talk. I, I, but I was just... Maybe thought, it's I the... Got uh, a, I got you guys are all on computers, computers, right? I saw him moving around a little bit like this, and it just sort of... The, the, the sound effect mm. kind of fit. So uh -huh. I just made this assumption. Anyway. Casting, no. casting stones. Yeah. Well, I've got. I, I've. Uh, I'm gonna have to. I've, I heard my cat go by two or three times outside, and people keep sending me emails. So uh, I've been looking at those, uh, not mm. reading them, but seeing them when they like to screen them. I have. Yeah. Well, I have one left. It's not popping now, is it? Not this moment. No. Mm. I, I, I have one last question, and then uh, I think we should say goodnight. There it is, okay. Brett. Uh, this is from Paul. Uh, speaking of the pandemic, anything good on TV that's keeping you entertained? Uh, if, any, if everybody wants to maybe say something about what they're watching or reading. Why don't you guys go first? Uh, Mike? Uh, I don't really watch TV other than Turner Classic Movies and occasionally the news. I just have no... I have I got rid of all my movie channels, so I have like uh, what I have um, uh, Netflix, uh, Amazon Prime. I have completely lost patience with TV. Mm -hmm. um, I can't watch any of these shows that people say are good shows, or any of the shows that people say are good comedies. Uh, that that happened a long time ago, but I finally let all of my movie channel my 
HBO, uh, you know, Showtime. I just let all that because the, they were just the, the channels are crap. They mostly just showed all these old junky movies. And then most of the movies that would come would be like they would be showing Justice League every five minutes. And it's like, I don't want to ever see Justice League again. I saw like five minutes of it and that was enough. So um, I find that I would rather much rather watch Turner Classic movies. And, uh, you know, I listen to a lot of audio books. Um, you know, I listen to listen to music. I, lo I love movies, but, uh, you know, we're it's that this goes back to my talking point earlier there's so much entertainment but most of it is just just crappy so it's like you That's can it's always been yeah but now there's even more and more and more there's like 50 streaming channel everybody's streaming 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 so you've got <laughs> the same crap that was at redbox but which used to be on hbo uh or on tbs but now it's over here so they just keep taking these this garbage and just keep spreading it from you know, one thing to the other. So, mm -hmm. so, so me, you've got your, your curmudgeon credentials are pretty well mapped out there. What if it's something good, you know, I love Primal. That was what awesome. You, what do you like to watch? You know, I don't watch TV. I don't have a TV. I, one. I, well, no, I, I, I used all my TV points in the 80s, <laughs> in the early 90s, and then I just kind of put it down. I'm a big YouTube guy now. Like okay, what do you like on YouTube? Uh, I watch a lot of documentaries about Japanese pro wrestling. And, <laughs> and, it's a narrow field. Okay. Yeah, well, yeah, it's you know I like a good niche, uh, and I listen to a lot of streaming um, music on YouTube. I don't know if you've heard about the Study Girl. Bill, there's just a couple of channels where there's kind of like a really limited animation of a kid studying and like a cat's wagging its tail in the window. And it's just like lo-fi beats going on for like... So you've got two kinds of zen going on there. You've got guys throwing themselves out from Japanese guys because every, everything Japanese has got some sort of zen in it. Yes. And then you've got the wagging dog tail and... Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Someone barely moving. Okay. Yeah, yeah, it's very, it's it's very calming. That's, How about that's, you, Brett? Yeah, Brett. What about you? You watch TV? Um, I don't watch much TV either because I just can't get used to watching it alone. So since I'm alone now, I, uh, I don't know. It feels too oppressive to me to sit there mm -hmm. by myself. But I do, I do read a lot, and I listen to a lot of BBC radio. There's all kinds of great stuff on there. There's a show called In Our Time that they have like 800 episodes. Wow. Where they just discuss some historical or philosophical or art uh, uh, subject. And they usually get two or three experts on there. Those are entertaining. Um, and I just finished an E.L. Doctorow book called Homer and Langley about the Collier brothers, which was uh, depressing, but mm. entertaining in its way. And I just started a, there's, there's a trilogy of books by a woman called Pat Barker about World War One that had great reviews, so I'll find out as I go on. But um, but I've actually been so busy that I've been putting in pretty long hours, so I mm -hmm. don't even have that much time to do anything. You know? Brett, do you do audiobooks at all? Yeah, yeah, tons yeah. of them. I actually listen to a lot of old radio shows when I'm actually doing something fairly mindless, you know, inking. Yeah, yeah. That kind of thing. X minus one. <laughs> uh, yeah, yesterday I was listening to Escape. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes mm -hmm. it's a funny one. So, like, I like the old uh, Al Williamson had a lot of um, 
radio shows on Real to Real. Mm. So kind of scouted for me. He had a bunch of Phil Harris shows, which were so I listened to those. It kind of reminds me of being back in the studio. Wow. Um, but uh, I guess I'm the only TV fan here. What are you watching? Uh, Better Call Saul. I really like. Mm -hmm. um, I enjoyed Watchmen. Uh, mm -hmm. the, the black actress who was cast the lead was fantastic and a really brave choice mm -hmm. for um, for lead on a show like that. Mm -hmm. um, I love audio books too. Uh, I love David Sedaris reading his own stuff. It's the funniest shit in the world. <laughs> um, I listen to a lot of podcasts uh, and they're kind of offbeat and different. Mm -hmm. One that sticks out to me is um, uh, Shit Town. It's literally called that. <laughs> it's supposedly about a. It's supposedly about a murder, but it ends up morphing into something completely different. That's super interesting about this one character who is a brilliant guy stuck in a hick town who mm -hmm. literally could have changed the world, mm -hmm. and he created this fictional murder to get attention for this thing. And ends up committing suicide by the end of it. It's just like, what the fuck? It was a really interesting story. <laughs> wow. Um, not an upbeat one, clearly. Mm -hmm. but. Oh, yeah. Sounds like uh, made you, if you're feeling a little down that day, ha, I can't wait till Shit Town comes on. I like Briar Patch, a new show on Amazon. Mm -hmm. uh, another black female lead who's cast offbeat, who's really great. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I review a lot of the older stuff, like, uh, Breaking Bad because um, my new girlfriend hasn't seen a ton of these shows, so I try to show her the best of. Uh, yeah, I, yeah, I watched that on Netflix. I I think I watched almost all of that on on Netflix. That was good. So, oh, you didn't you didn't finish Breaking Bad? Yeah, yeah. See, for me, my TV is over here, and so if I'm working here, you can't. Then it, TV just becomes radio if it's like over there. So I don't. And like Brett, I work long hours, so occasionally if I take lunch or dinner, you know, I might watch something. But I ended up listening to the audiobooks yeah, or music. A, you're a total workaholic. So <laughs> I definitely have my time after I'm done working, and then I watch things in the evening before we go to bed. And I mm. unabashedly like TV. I do kind of agree that a lot of it's junk. But I'll watch something like Tiger King just because of these these people are such human wrecks. I, I have right. to admit, there's a Jerry Springer side to me that I find that stuff entertaining. Right. Yeah, I do enjoy a little bit of junk TV. I'll go in the living room and watch uh, <laughs> Below Deck is my favorite. I don't know if you've seen this. It's a really bad no. re reality show about a bunch of people who do um, <sighs> a high scale yacht rentals. So they have these clients who spend a lot of money for a three-day tour on this yacht, and these yachties huh. have to like serve them hand and foot, and then they <laughs> hand, hand them a giant envelope of money at the end of it for their tip. Making <laughs> the rich people happy show. Yeah, that's exactly what uh, it is. See, yeah. I think my bad TV is I got to watch a rerun of the Monsters. So <laughs> that's that's I where I am. I can't go there. I can't go yeah. back to those classics. You know, uh, Car Fifty Four. Where are you? You know, uh, you got a Fred <laughs> Gwynn thing going on. All right. Well, we should say good night. I think this was great. Um, 
Bill, do you have? Uh, I, I just talked about myself the whole time. Well, that's why we wanted you here. For yeah, it. yeah, we didn't want you to talk about your neighbor. <laughs> oh, I got some stories there. I, 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 I imagine. I am. I imagine. Uh, Bill, where can uh, you point people to your work on the internet? Well, it's pretty easy, uh, and it needs to kind of be updated. But WilliamRay.com uh, has all. That's where. A lot of the stuff that Mike brought up is probably from there. Mm -hmm. And um, I don't know, I don't know which search he did. And I still have the Big Bone Baby thing uh, up there as a site for my cartooning, but that's woefully out of print. Basically, the way to follow me is just to become my Facebook friend or my Instagram friend. Because, mm -hmm. like a lot of us, we just sort of keep posting what we do there. And, yeah. You know, Mike obsessively posts his strips there. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it's it's just I do the same thing. I post every painting that I like up, up on the internet, and some I don't. Mm -hmm. So that's my new publishing ground, and I think we all take advantage of that to some degree. Yeah. Oh, and uh, Bill, are any of your uh, catalogs for sale on your William Ray site? Like, how can people pick up those? Your final. You can order the abstract book mm -hmm. uh, via paying through PayPal on on my williamray.com thing mm -hmm. and um if you go to the trouble of talking to um my person at 56 books uh sandra she uh can kind of separately sell you one or two of the other books we still have copies of you know that have been discussed mm -hmm. but there's not an easy click button like there is with do you have any shows coming up or you have any uh, classes you'll be teaching or you have you thought about online stuff at all or uh i have never jumped into the online thing i know everybody is now especially with the virus going on but um maybe i'll do that one day but right now i just like to do the classes in person usually once a year i'll probably do one in kentucky uh this year but I'm not sure if that final date, uh, I believe it's in October or September. Um, I'm forgetting the name of the guy's school, which isn't too smart right now to, to say that. But if you follow my, if you go to my webpage again, I'll, it'll probably have a listing of that, if not now, pretty soon, because it's still a little bit off in the future. And if you follow my Facebook thing, I definitely keep everybody updated on stuff like that. Mm. Um, but I, I only do the teaching once or twice a year because I don't, I always want it to be fresh and fun. I don't want to get worn out on it. I could never be an art teacher full time. Mm. That would just kill it for me. Yeah. But thanks for trying to find a way to plug my stuff. <laughs> it's what, it's what, it's what I do. <laughs> All right, guys. Um, this was a great event and a great evening, Bill. Uh, thank you so much for taking yeah, time out of day. Um, just one more quick plug for our people. Uh, we are sponsored by Clip Studio Paint. <laughs> right there. Right there. there. Yeah, right there. There. Uh, I, I, do, I do everything with Clip Studio Paint. Yeah, see, it's it's not a trick. Everybody's using it. Everybody's doing it. Yeah. Um, also, for people who are going to trying to find a different way to listen to this, we will do an audio version that gets ripped and goes to our Pencil to Pencil website and also iTunes and also Stitcher. And um, 
if you missed this, you're probably watching it on our Facebook page. Please like and follow us. Uh, we'll be back on Wednesday. We go live every Wednesday and every Saturday. So uh, tune in. And uh, if you guys have questions for us or Bill after the fact, please leave them in the comments and we'll make sure we get them to them. Hey, thanks, guys. I appreciate it. It was fun. Thank yeah, you. yeah. Thanks a lot, Bill. Thank you. I nice see some faces I haven't seen for a while. I know. Yeah. You, you look good, Bill. <laughs> uh, the diet's working. The diet's working. <laughs> and thanks again to my co hosts, Mike and Brett. We'll see you around. Wash your hands. Hey. All right. <laughs>